This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this show to give you the information, the tools you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Top of the morning to you. By the way, Friday. It's Friday, which is the eve of Saturday where you get to watch sports. And this year, I'm sure, go. I mean, this time of year, go shopping. Yeah, because... Get all your shopping done. The sports you can watch is... Kind of early season college basketball, yeah, not which the is, same. Yeah. This this is always the uh, college football is basically over. There's yeah. the Army Navy game, but I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some pomp and circumstance. But once the game starts, you're like, eh, okay, whatever. Hey, apparently, uh, Navy's coach Ken. Good luck. Low, uh, low to la anyway is coming to BYU to visit. Okay, I read that from where. Where'd you read that from? An, from an um, inside sources. Inside sources. Okay. On football coaches going to visit places. They'll have com. visits because there's people that would want to come here. But I wonder what you say when you're a head coach going to visit. To who? To the like the the leaders of the school. Hi, I'm interested in your opening. Just a job interview. You show up with your binder of. This is what I do on day one of practice. This is what I do on day two, and they this go, is "Wow, you're really organized." Yeah. That's pretty cool. I, what I've heard is most coaches have a binder. Oh, and yeah. They who, will tell, who does? You don't have a binder. No. And they have it all set up day one of practice through the last day of the season, what you do every day of practice. See, I wouldn't know what to bring. You start out with a letter that says, to whom it may concern. Dear I am diary. interested in your open position. <laughs> I have very marketable skills. <laughs> I am a team player. <laughs> People love me. Uh, Innovative thinker. BYU is looking for a head coach. So if you're out there, you know, if you, you know, if you know sports. It's not a job that gets posted, though. Well, they should post it. It, First, they should look for internal applicants. It's kind of funny to see some of the state institutions around the country when they have an opening. Yeah. And they just, they have to just post it. It's posted. And then there's all these people send in their resumes because they think, why not? It's an open job. And, well, that's and what's funny about sports. Everybody thinks they know how to be the head coach. Of course. You sit at home. I can do that. There are thousands of people that think they could coach BYU football. So then reporters do the open records request mm-hmm. because it's all state documents, right? And they, right. they send out a bunch of resumes. That's so great. Here's how many people applied. I'm telling you. I wouldn't want that job. No. I'd rather watch it. Bronco uh, Mendenhall would talk about how he couldn't go to the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Or if he Can did, you, he put, you put on a ball cap and just don't make eye contact. And hopefully oh, yeah. you just sort of slip I'd in. I'd put on a beard, yeah. a wig, long wig. I don't know. Well, whatever. Hey, here's the deal. Hillary Clinton solved the problem. She's fixed it. How's that? We just All we need is more love. Really? Which just... All we need is love? Yeah. I'm pretty sure John Lennon told us that as, yeah. a he while did ago. As Trump rises, Clinton preaches love and kindness. We need more love. Yeah. She says he's not funny anymore either. 
He's not. No. Well, I, was he funny? No, she was. She was. Uh, I guess she was pointing out the fact that a lot of people thought it was kind of funny. He's kind of a oh, yeah. maybe a joke quirky. Candidate. Yeah. She's trying to impress upon people. This is serious. Yeah. He's actually running for president. Didn't know if you knew this. Yeah. He's running for president. I think. I think everybody. I think they're all surprised. I think even the Democrats were thinking, "Oh yeah, give us Trump. Yeah. Give us Trump." Right. But in the end, I think everyone's afraid of Trump. Because he's he's a loose cannon, you know. When you got a loose cannon on your ship and it just keeps rolling around firing, it well, gets scary. So far, he's he because he does this attack thing. Yeah. When people challenge him, criticize him, he'll attack them by their looks. He'll attack them by their their whatever issue that their has brains, nothing nothing to do. Smart, with, yeah, yeah, it's nothing to do with what they're talking about. Like with uh, what Kasich out of uh, Ohio, he he's always talking about how fracking his major yeah. whole yeah. your whole uh, he just you know, finds any weakness and just yeah. You know. So he goes up against Hillary. Does he just open Wikipedia and start with like Whitewater and just go down the list? Yeah, I mean he could sit there for hours. Oh, can you imagine? And and no one's going to fact check it. No. Well, well, they will, but it doesn't matter because no. facts don't matter. Uh, one of the things that there's a quote that says um, in this article from the AP that La, or Trump. No, love trumps hate. Okay. So just that sentence makes sense, except when your candidate is named Trump. Yeah. Love trump hates. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Think that one through. Uh, Hillary Clinton, though, you know, who, we don't even talk about her anymore. Well, she's, Have you noticed? I mean, she's, like she, for five days, she's been who? Yeah. She goes out and she speaks to groups, but yeah. it, the, the cameras don't follow her because- Well, she's not- There's this other thing happening. She's not erratic enough. Hey, uh, Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday is tomorrow. Yes. How cool. I bet he's glad he's not alive. I would really not want to be alive at 100. I have an aunt that's 102. Do you really? Yeah, I don't- That means you got good genes. I don't know if- uh, Well, it's a great aunt, but I don't know if she's- uh, She sounds great. She's in a rest home, and she just sort of goes fishing occasionally, and, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the one I caught yesterday. <laughs> we keep having birthday parties every year for her. He was huge. Here, um, a little Frank Sinatra trivia. Did you know that Frank Sinatra was given up for dead at birth? Huh. The delivery of the 13-pound baby in his parents' New Jersey kitchen Whoa. on December 12, 1915 was traumatic. Yeah. 13 pounds. When he finally emerged, there were no signs of life. Well, because he was what? He was like a toddler. Yeah. It's huge. Um, So the doctor put him uh, to one side to attend to his mother, Dolly. It was only when the child's grandmother picked up the baby, ran cold water over him, and slapped his back that he started breathing. There's a start to life. We'll freeze you out with a shower. Can you believe that? He wasn't even supposed to be called Frank. He was supposed to be called Martin. Martin Sinatra. Which would have been really hard because, you know, Dean Martin was one yeah. of the Brat well, Pack or whatever they called him. Maybe if his name was Frank, he wouldn't have – or if it was Martin, he wouldn't have raised him to, you know, Frank. When, when the priest was conducting his baptism, the priest accidentally called him Frank Garrick, huh. the family friend who was there as the baby's godfather. Sinatra's mother chose to stick with the name, believing that the mistake must be a good omen. Hmm. Interesting. Isn't that wild? Uh, his nickname was Scarface – Growing up because he had scars because of the forceps they needed to use to get him out of the womb at 13 pounds on the floor of the kitchen. (laughs) They tied it off to a truck. and (laughs) The forceps also punctured his eardrum. Whoa. Man. 
He had a tough start to this. This is why during World War II he couldn't he couldn't serve in the military. Yeah, he probably would. Frank been Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, by the way, a broken eardrum you'd think would affect your singing, your hearing. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, the girls, the the first girls that were his fans, they were uh, they they paid they paid these girls to scream. So like Donald Trump's first. Yeah. Press conference, they truck people in exactly. for an audience. They paid them. Similar with Frank Sinatra. Like from my homeless shelter, they bring them all in. You'll <laughs> love Mr. Trump. Come in here and scream. So he auditioned girls to find those who could scream the loudest and then paid them $5 to sit at carefully chosen points in the audience so screaming was uh, would turn into a frenzy. It turns infectious as it spreads through the crowd. He, uh, huh. Mr. Sinatra did not really like the hit, his classic hit, My Way. He huh. didn't like it. I did it my way. That was actually sung at my grandpa's funeral. Uh, the five, guess how tall he was. You, hopefully you didn't read this. Oh, I did. Uh, Garrett, do you know how tall Mr. Sinatra was? Um, well, I'm going to say five foot seven. You jerk. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> yeah, exactly yes. right. You Garrett jerk. Rushforth. See, I, I didn't know because uh, it goes on to say he wore lifts. He did. No, I so I didn't know if that was before or after the lifts. Well, it's sensitive about his modest height of 5'7", which means he was probably 5'5". Five five. Okay. Yeah, yeah you, every, you always go higher. It's yeah. like all of those, yeah. All, he, everybody in the NBA is actually an inch shorter than they are. <laughs> yeah. So he wore some lifts, elevator shoes, they used to call them back in the day, to uh, make him a little taller. He inspired the name Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? <laughs> but during uh, uh, he was Scooby-Doo was originally going to be called Too Much. But during a flight to a development meeting, CBS executive Fred Silverman heard Sinatra's recording of Strangers in the Night, the doobie-doo, doobie-doobie-doo, that guy, remember that? Uh, The lyrics at the end gave him the idea for the cartoon Hound's name, Scooby-Doo. That's pretty cool. The Rat Pack. What would have too much been? That's weird. That's a weird name. Too much. Because the whole show would have had to been the the theme song, Yeah. the the process of the show would have been different. How would you do... Really do. Yeah, that whole thing's gone. Too that whole character was based yeah. on the name. See, that's why you need Sinatra's yeah. motivation. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. We'll give you more Frank uh, highlights. I mean, he really was. His music's incredible. And it just sets the mood, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, if you want to just really wow a lady. Tomorrow we have to drive around quite a bit. Yeah. Me and my family. Put it in. You know, Frank. I'm going to go down tonight, sing it to the phone. She'll be holding your hand. Oh, it'll be romantic. Well, I don't know about that. Your kid will be in the back seat. Stop touching each other. Every time I go to hold her my wife's hand, my kid tries to stop it. Oh, yeah. He's all, no, no, no. Greatest thing as a parent is to kiss your children's mother. Oh, yeah. They freak out. So great. Fastest way to clear the room. Yeah. Oh, Dad. They're gross. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines. We got a great guest coming up in a few minutes, uh, May Fong, an interview that we did with May about uh, the relaxing of China's one-child rule, which yeah. is a big, big deal. And we're gonna, she's going to talk she about all the about research. the history, where it came from. May yeah. Fong's a Pulitzer Prize winner. That's how big the show's getting. Little Frank Sinatra, little May Fong. Let's get to the headlines, though, with our other winner, uh, Terry South. Winner. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. The FBI, FBI divers were searching a lake into the San Bernardino massacre scene on Thursday, looking for a potential evidence in the case after leads that the shooters might have spent time there. It was not clear if they hoped to find weapons or electronics that the shooters 
Syed Farouk and wife Tafshin Malik might have ditched before or after they murdered 14 people on December 2nd. Investigators have already cataloged more than 325 pieces of evidence and interviewed more than 400 people in the investigation. As it is ongoing, Connecticut Governor Daniel Malloy intends to deny gun access to anyone on no-fly lists. He announced this Thursday. Governor Malloy was on CBS News. Yeah, I read this report about how many times uh, people on the terrorism watch list have been allowed to, to legally buy guns in America. It was actually 2,043 times. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make people safer. It makes it, a, I think, a, a much more dangerous situation. Uh, it, it's come to our attention, um, and it's time to do something about it. This makes Connecticut the first state to attempt to block gun sales for people on this list. Malloy will issue an executive order and coordinate directly with the White House to get access to the names on that list. President Obama reversed course on federal education policy Thursday, signing a bill to curtail the federal government's role in education from kindergarten through high school and instead allow states to set their own standards. Calling the bipartisan Every Student Succeeds Act a Christmas miracle, Obama said the law would give states more flexibility in raising student achievement while maintaining a federal role for ensuring that all students have the opportunity to get a quality education. The new law expressly prohibits the Education Department from imposing the Common Core model. Hmm. The states will have uh, control over Good. what education is taught and what part of the country, and the federal government will be there in a support status. It, it seems like. appropriate. It's what people want. It's what the yeah. what the fight has been over this issue. So, with uh, talks still stalled over a one point one trillion dollar omnibus spending bill, and just a day before the government runs out runs out of money, the Senate voted Thursday to keep federal agencies open for business through midweek next week. So, the five day continuing resolution approved by voice vote last uh, last through Wednesday. <laughs> the House is expected to follow suit on Friday today with an identical stopgap measure. The move to buy more time came hours after House Speaker Paul Ryan huddled privately Thursday with Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell to discuss the budget negotiations. Republicans and Democrats are having a difficult time coming to an agreement on a year-long spending bill and tax break package. Mm. Sounds like we've had this before. They'll just figure some little temporary thing and kick the can down the road. And it drives everybody crazy because this is what held uh, President Obama last year, wasn't it, for the holidays. So he, yeah. you know, he wants to get to Hawaii. He's got a big Hawaii trip coming up. Right. And this kind of happens every year. this thing done. Every year. And in uh, other news, more important news, this time next week, Mm -hmm. Star Wars. Oh, so we can all then finally relax. Correct. Except for the holidays and everything else. But Star Wars will be here. It's one of those mileposts I was talking about for this month. Yeah. You you bought your tickets like two years ago. Two months ago. (laughs) It's not not that unheard of. No, it's not. Kind of nuts. Lots stuff. Of- so, in what's been called the Ultimate Star Wars Marathon Contest, the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema is sponsoring the Star Wars The Marathon Awakens sweepstakes in honor of the Star Wars The Force Awakens movie coming out next week. But the contest is open only to residents of states that have Alamo Drafthouse movie theaters. So, wow. if you have one in your state, you were eligible because the contest ended last night. Uh, is that to- why you're doing the story now? Because you didn't want anyone else well, to I found- win? I found it yesterday. To enter, okay. participants must post a photo on Instagram showing why they are the biggest Star Wars fan. 
the uh, photo must be posted by midnight, December 10th. Oh, this so, is going to get crazy. Yeah, so they have all these Instagram photos out there now. <laughs> Con- contestants must be 21 years or older. Seven winners will be selected. So seven winners selected from all the Instagram photos. Entrants must travel to the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas to participate in the marathon, which will consist of watching the first six Star Wars films in sequential order. Ah. Uh. That, that, with minimal breaks. Ah. Uh. That's uh, 17 hours of viewing time to watch the first six movies. They're going to ruin their their movie, their new movie. So round-the-clock screenings, and then after, if you survive. If you survive that. Then round-the-clock showings of the new movie. They'll show it, and then start it over, and then uh, start it over, and just keep going until you're down to one contestant remaining. I trained for this my entire high school career. (laughs) This is... So Sad. participants will be given breaks between movies to stretch their legs, use the restroom, that kind of stuff. Sleeping illegal, sleeping in the theater, illegal drugs, uh, talking, texting during the movies will re- uh, result in disqualification. So no like Adderall or yeah. something to yeah, get y'all hyped up. Can't stay do any of that. Up. The winner of the movie marathon will receive a seven-year movie pass to the Alamo theaters nationwide. Wow. Uh, a set of 2015-2016 tops like trading cards with Star Wars on them, which, you know, okay. A selection of Star Wars posters. Well, won't this person need all of this stuff? Because they obviously don't have friends. And they will have a theater seat named after them in their honor, complete with a naming ceremony. Oh, my word. So as I read the the, the winning grand prize, I'm like, yeah. not worth it. But, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, no, that's not worth it. But they're going to watch 17 hours, and then they'll watch the new movie on loop until <laughs> there's one person left. <laughs> the sad thing is there's some guy that can go 10 days. Oh, yeah. Just camp out, no problem. I mean, he's like, well, I did that yesterday. That's crazy. Oh, well. Good. But At least there's a contest. It's, it's not that difficult because it's just sitting. Yeah. Right? Well, but you got to stay awake. Well, I mean. I mean, how many times, once you've seen the show, you've seen the show. And you had have to go watch 17 you, hours. It has to be a real fan. Yeah. And then or, you, the hard part is you can't talk about it. You can't oh, sit there and like, oh, this oh, is the part I love. That was the best part. Have yeah. some sort of commentary. You have to sit there in silence. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I missed the deadline. That would have been a lot of fun. Hey, uh, we've got a, a great uh, guest coming up in a minute. You may have heard about China relaxing their one-child policy. Do you remember? They, uh, they made it so you could only have one child, and that created so many unforeseen problems, uh, I- including the mere fact that they now don't have enough people to sustain their population. So now they're saying, okay, now you can have two kids, which I'm going to bet might even create other problems, right? So we're going to be speaking with uh, Mei Fong in just a few minutes. She's the author of the book, One Child, The Past and Future of China's Most Radical Experiment. She's a former Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, we're going to be talking with Mei all about uh, China and their policies. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, You know, for over 30 years, China has maintained a one-child policy implemented with the hope of lowering the nation's population in order to boost economic growth. However, what resulted in the end was millions of forced sterilizations, abortions, and countless marital problems. But earlier this fall, the Central Committee of China's uh, Communist Party announced that it would end the one-child policy. 
And joining us today, we are so uh, grateful to have May Fong, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street journalist, reporter, and author of the book, One Child, The Past and the Future of China's Most Radical Experiment. Her book describes the numerous problems China has and is facing as a result of this policy and uh, what it will take to reverse the decades-long policy. So, Mei Fong, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Matt. (laughs) It's It's such an interesting, I mean, experiment. It was a radical experiment, what China did. Talk to us, talk to us about... First of all, how you how you became so interested in it, and then talk to us about how the how the policy started. Why would China do such a radical experiment? Well, most people don't know this about the one child policy, but it was actually crafted by rocket scientists. Oh, Did really? You know that? No, I didn't. So it well, was the work of a rocket scientist. Well, several rocket scientists. Well, basically, the background of this was. In the 60s and 70s, there was this worldwide fear about uh, population growth, that it would overwhelm the planet's resources. And this wasn't just in China alone, of course. Even in the States, we had things like the publication of the uh, population bomb, Mm -hmm. and then there was the zero population growth movement. Now, um, but in China, uh, it was a very unique situation because they had just uh, come off the Cultural Revolution. So a lot of um, academics... uh, economists, demographers, sociologists, they just, they were very demoralized because, you know, the country's most elite had suffered the most under the Cultural Revolution. And they had very few resources and very little political capital. So when it came down to crafting some sort of a a policy to help rein in uh, China's growth, population growth, which was quite significant at Mm -hmm. the time, there was really no um, intelligentsia left except military scientists, you know, who were left alone during the Cultural Revolution because they were military scientists. So these rocket scientists had their resources. uh, They had computers and and, and, um, the numbers and the political capital to institute this thing. So. When they, they, they worked out the numbers and they calculated, Deng Xiaoping had basically wanted China to be at a stage where you would have, um, you know, per capita GDP of a thousand U.S. dollars. And they basically worked back from that calculation and calculated it, well, you know, with a per capita growth of this many people, we can't achieve it. So therefore, we need to move straight away to a very radical one-child policy move. Mm. And the funny part of it and the sad part of it was that actually China was already practicing population planning. They had in uh, place a population uh, planning policy uh, called later, longer and fewer. (laughs) And it was not so coercive. The basic idea was um, encouraging people to get married later and have fewer kids and space their kids uh, longer apart. And this had been going on for about 10 years before the one-child policy was launched. And in that time period, they had already reduced family sizes in China from an average of six kids to three. Wow. So it was very successful. And, um, you know, a lot of demographers argued that they could have gone on and done this. And yeah. The, and the population would have gone down anyway without having to go through such a drastic, radical solution, which was implemented by rocket scientists who basically calculated like a a math game you know okay we need to reach this trajectory so therefore we need that but they had basically no input from economists or demographers who who might have 
wade in and say, look, you know what? Human behavior isn't like this. This isn't such a great idea, guys. Hang on, <laughs> hang on. Uh, there was none of that to, to sort of come back and say, rein them in. So this this is why China has this radical social experiment. Oh, wow. And the rest of the world did not, even though everybody at that time was sitting around their hands and wondering, oh, my gosh, are we going to have a population explosion? Right. So they, they were the world. everyone was yeah. using everyone had kind of the same fear, the same idea. China mm-hmm. just actually acted on it. Yeah, in a very severe way. <laughs> very severe way. And it seems like um, it, it, it created maybe uh, – uh, you'd explain it to us. It created a problem though where now that they're reinstating or actually removing the rule or the law and you can I guess have as two children. It, but now they people may not be in the mindset or the place to want to do that or the ability economically to even have two. Yeah, I mean, you might call the one-child policy, you know, shooting itself in the foot, you know, because here's the thing, right? They wanted this policy to, uh, you know, help China grow economically. In reality, it really didn't have much to do with China's double-digit economic growth, which had more to do with issues like, um, you know, private enterprise and foreign investment than the number of babies born. But the problem is going ahead, what you're going to have is a much smaller workforce and and, and a very old uh, retiree force. So Because, you know, one of the things that China China boomed. One of the reasons why China boomed was because they had a big population. Right. And this was the population born before the one-child policy, and these population, uh, you know, was able to go to work in the factories in the nineties and eighties and nineties. At the time when China was, you know, releasing all these barriers to a foreign enterprise and and, and manu- so that's why China became this huge manufacturing juggernaut. That is why China's growth grew so fast. It had nothing to do with the one child. It had to do with more people, not less people. Right. But but that very same large group of people are now going to live longer, and mm-hmm. so they're going to. So by twenty fifty, one in four Chinese people will be a retiree. So that's a big number. I mean, basically, if, if Chinese retirees were to form their own country, they would be the third largest country in the world after Holy India and China cow. alone. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's a huge army. And that's not anything to do with the one-child policy. But no. The problem is the one-child policy means there are fewer working adults to support this huge army. Mm-hmm. So who's going to pay for the pension? Who's going to take care of yeah. you know, Who's going to pay for the and, – and, and even on a very intimate level – how would you like to be an only child with six aging adults to take care of? You know, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and yeah, you need to support them. You need to just you know love them, care for them. Wow. And China doesn't have the Medicare and Medicaid. Society. I mean, look, a lot of societies are aging. It's not just China. But every aging society that we have has had maybe 50 years to take care of that, you know, to prepare for this. China is going to do this in one generation. You, do you think they're prepared? No way. Well, and it's interesting, too. It's uh, it was it was an experiment that has failed and now they need it to recover economically they they want this to to create maybe an economic spark or an economic boom as well as a supportive boom to take care of that huge generation or that population you're talking about and it doesn't look like that's going to it's going to happen well, that's the issue, right? I mean, even even if they move to a two-child policy, it's still a population planning policy, right? right. Two is still two. You can't have three or four just because you feel like right. it. Right. But at the same time, um, you know, there have been many polls in China that have showed that a lot of people are not going to uh, – don't want to have more than one child. They've been very conditioned by the one-child policy. So in a way, the one-child policy is actually considered a huge success, right? Because yeah. Because it's been so convincing that it has changed the mindset of many urban Chinese. They, they consider the one-child family to be the ideal. 
ideal. Mm. And so it's going to be very hard going forward to turn on the baby tap again. You know, it's much easier to turn off the tap uh, many, you know, than to turn it on. So the question is, how are you going to, you can tell people not to have children. You can take them and sterilize them and you can, you know, take them and forcibly abort them. But how are you going to make them have children? Oh. That's a much more trickier task. That, yeah. And how do you break that? That paradigm that one's enough, and then I guess there's the the economic reality that it's 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 incredibly expensive and it's hard for them to have two children. Exactly. So if you want to move to a, a, a sort of a new uh, mindset of, of of having more children, then you're going it's going to cost you, right? Because you're going to have to encourage people by giving them much more subsidies in the way of schooling and education and and tax breaks. And so far, they've only been about what France and Sweden has been able to sort of do that a little bit, but it costs you a lot. And China is, isn't simply at the, that financial stage to be able to afford this. Holy yes. cow! Incredible. It, it's a it's an interesting dilemma that. Uh, uh, I, I want to c- continue discussing with you, May. Hang on a minute. Let's take a break. We'll come back and continue this one-child uh, policy from China. Now it's a two-child policy, but what what does that really mean? We'll continue the discussion with May Fong and her book, One Child, The Past and the Future of China's Most Radical Experiment. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, honored to have our guest. Uh, we've been talking with May Fong, uh, the author of the book One Child, The Past and Future of China's Most Radical Experiment. She's talking about us, about China's uh, new law to allow their, uh, their, their population to have two children instead of one child. She's a former, uh, actually a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist, Wall Street uh, reporter and author of the book One Child. May, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to have you. Really, it really to me, this is such an interesting subject because when when they made the policy, the, it it actually created a backlash too because they're the policy itself. Uh, it, it started to kind of create restrictions on the personal life of the Chinese that I guess they had never felt to that point. No, certainly. I mean, you know, I mean, this is basically the state regulating your womb. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it's not even even, you know, even if you go to the extremes, right? OK, so in many cases, they favor sterilization uh, because that's a foolproof way of ensuring people will keep to the policy. So, you know, women who say who, who are afraid of that sterilization said, look, um, how about if I, instead I promise not to have more children, but I don't want to be sterilized. Can I just take a pill or something mm-hmm. that you couldn't do that in many places? You couldn't. You just had to be sterilized. And then there were cases of women who suffered, you know, because some of these operations were botched and they had health problems after that. Mm. And it wasn't even just women. Men, too, had, were sterilized in many places. In Sichuan, for example, um, they populated this method called the, um, you know, no scalpel vasectomy. So they don't use a, they don't make a, and, and it takes five minutes. They, you know, the way it was yeah. described to me is you put a crochet hook and you stick it into the scrotal sack and oh. you wriggle it about. And then five minutes later, it's done. And, you know, they, they used to do it in town areas as a, you know, as a show effort to say, look, everybody, this is what you should do. Not a big deal. Wow. <laughs> Not a big deal. Or, you know, and and you, you can imagine how many people actually really want wanted to do this, yeah. you know, uh, on a personal level. And even as late as 2010, Amnesty International uh, described a mass sterilization exercise in Guangdong in southern China where 10,000 people had were, were sterilized en masse. 
And uh, in many cases, people didn't want to do it. And to to coerce them to doing it, then some some cases your your relatives might be put in a in a sort of a holding jail cell. Oh wow! And, you know, and, and they'll say, "Look, you gotta show up and do this, otherwise your mother's gonna be spending time in jail." You know, that's how yeah. they do it. So so that, so then the resentment kicks in, and. And then to also see the policies were failed. I mean, you also were selecting your gender of your babies. So certain rural rural areas would want more sons, you know, I guess, to work on the farm. And so it actually created a, a huge, you know, divide in the balance and the ratio of male to female. Well, that's the thing, right? Any sociologist would be able to tell you, look, China, India, those places, they, they have big sun-loving cultures. It's very patriarchal. Yeah. So if you move to something like a one-child policy, that's going to be a big problem, you know, and lead to cases of infanticide. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, right? <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think anybody anticipated the scale of how severe this would be in China. I mean, India also, like, you know, is very, it has a big um, sun preference right. culture, but, but India doesn't have the one-child policy, yeah. so their, their differences are not as marked. In China, you have to it really boils down to it. you have to choose. You okay? We can only have one, or so then 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 you really will choose one son. And now you have thirty million more men than women in China uh, who are bachelors. Who you know? I mean, that's the size of Canada. You know how Holy how are these men going to find? Yeah, you right. think Chinese government is not going to import a population the size of Canada of women yeah. <laughs> into you know. So the, there, the, there's a very strong chance that most of these men will not be able to have families or, or, or you know because of mm-hmm. this huge imbalance. Well, I mean, we've I've, we've we've done stories uh, about the fact that the, that a man might have or a woman might have three or four boyfriends. <laughs> oh, the whole yeah. There was a there was an um, there was a, 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 a an academic who suggested yeah. that maybe China should go back to polyandry yeah, by sharing. Exactly. To reviews. Yeah, except that I don't know very many women who no. are very happy to who have wants three or that four exactly. Men. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right? Not going to happen. But, so the big yeah. Yeah, no. On. To keep going, I'm just thinking that's just it, it's amazing the the systemic structure of this. You make one decision that then leads to. 30 or 40 other problems for you. Well, then the other thing is, is, you know, okay, so it was very great for women, of urban women, of a certain, so because, you know, you didn't have any brothers to share with. Right. You know, so your parents would educate you and send you to college. So you have greater numbers of women getting educated and graduate degrees and, and, and more opportunities in a workplace. So for urban women, the one-child policy was in a way beneficial. But now flipping ahead, you look ahead, and then it's the start of a backlash uh, because, you know, the government is very aware of the fact that they, they do have this population imbalance, and the only way they're going to be able to address this to some extent is to push women into marriage. So the, you, you have all these campaigns now, this whole term called leftovers. You know, women are stigmatized as leftovers oh, wow. on the shelf yeah. if they are not married by the grand age of 25. Oh, 25! Cow. yeah. <laughs> So now all this, yeah, now, now there's this stigma on a 26 year old female in China because she's just not, I guess, good enough. Well, no, no, there's this sort of push uh, to, to say, to, can you please hurry up and a get hustle. married? Yeah, you, you know? got to get married. A hustle. Yeah, that you're somehow left over and on the shelf. You know, Holy cow, leftovers. You, when you're 25, 26. And, you know, when you look at the numbers, it, it really isn't that way at all, right? right. You, you work it out. If you have a 30 million male surplus, you are not on the shelf at yeah. 25. Yeah, you're you fine. You some choices. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to get out there. But it's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, too, when I think about um, – I mean, just almost you can imagine how many families wanted two children, wanted three children. Um, 
and how 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 many people suffered just emotional pain not being able to have more for well, years? I mean, if we look at the pain issue, let's just talk about one thing that uh, really impacts American households. Many of these, uh, when this child policy came about, many people gave away their extra children, mm-hmm. right? And these children ended up in international adoption homes. Out of 120,000 uh, children that were adopted out of China, uh, during this period, 80,000 of them are in American homes. Mm. So there are American it's uh, true. parents who, who have children who are sort of benefited from the one yeah. policy. Well, in fact, yeah. uh, you know, um, Governor Huntsman, who ran yeah. for president, he has a daughter from China named May, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> So yeah, being, yeah. I, mean, I sit yeah, there and he, I think he's. A, I don't know her name, but I know she. He dad has a daughter from and, China, and he and she's the pride of their life. And I, I, I do. I, I sit there. So I, I'm assuming that uh, that the international adoptions from China will probably go down as more are going to be staying in the country. Well, the supply has gone down for quite a long time. Uh, that was an issue uh, because, you know, what at one point technology made it possible for people to do a scan. So instead of having to, you know, have a, carry a child a full right. term before you know it as a boy or girl, now people can tell. So a lot of people started having abortions. And so the supply of children and orphanages started to go down. But that turned out to be a bad thing, too, because what happened was uh, there was a trafficking and selling of children right and so there have been some cases where family planning officials would seize children who were born out of plan and take them and put them in orphanages and some of them ended overseas so um so that whole concept that you know the 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 child you adopted is someone who's been rightfully abandoned and unwanted may not necessarily be a true one anymore Hmm. that person might have been sold because basically what the one child policy did you know if you look at it in pure economics terms creates a shortage and what happens when you have a shortage then you know prices go up that's uh, right you have a black market it is what what when i mean your book it's it's so acclaimed and it's it's um it's so i think i don't know well researched and 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 real what are your biggest learnings as you as you've studied it in depth what do you take away from this experiment gone seriously wrong well i think the problem the chinese government had or the was that they didn't believe enough in india people you know when you start counting people as numbers and as mouths to feed rather than as potential you know, uh, potential uh, talent givers, mm-hmm. then, then that's a problem. I mean, you, if you hearken back to that whole issue of the fears of population growth overwhelming the planet, it didn't happen, right? Some people thought, well, by now we would all, you know, the world would be over. That was a projection, right. one of the projections, yeah. But th- at the same time, what they didn't factor in was human ingenuity, right? We right. had the Green Revolution. We were somehow able to figure out a way to feed a lot more people uh, with crops. And, and so... So the the same idea was that you know China didn't believe enough uh, in in the potential of these uh, of their people and it just counted them as as grains you know to be rationed you know in the same way you do, and and that was I think that's the that's the wrong idea and I'll tell you a story one of the stories I wrote about was this big idea of what happens when you have a, a nation that's full of little empress you know you have a third of the country is all single children so mm-hmm. there were all these hypotheses are these kids going to be overspoiled um, you know have poor dreams lacking in entrepreneurship what is this going to mean for the nation and I wrote about one of these kids that I've been following for years and he and I was worried that he too would you know have some you know he has so many family obligations he had all that he wasn't going to grow enough, that he couldn't dream big dreams. And I was wrong because it turns out this kid, 
um, you know, told me that he's he's transgender. He wants to change to be. He has mm-hmm. a big dream, all right. Yeah. He he's basically the Caitlyn Jenner of China, and so uh, so I guess the point is people can surprise you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they can, and you know, so to to sort of have this very negative perception of people as just being sh- sure consumers, right? It's not necessarily a good thing. No, I I think that that is a profound idea, isn't it? If they had just trusted in their people. And their ingenuity, their ability to problem solve and even self-regulate, self-manage, it would have been – you probably would be able to – Turn it on and off more like they would have wanted. Well, yeah, every 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 place in the world that has educated women and sent them to college, women naturally have smaller families that way. You know, th- that was a certain amount of trust going forth in right. that basis. But they didn't trust enough. They were like, "No, we don't trust that you're going to want to have fewer kids. Uh, please come here and be sterilized." <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, that just just that in and of itself. I mean, the memories of that for so many of them. Yeah, plus just now they're used to it and the economy doesn't support it. I guess that's another thing. You could eventually have five-kid you know, policies or six-kid policies, but in the end, if the economy can't support it, it can't support it yet. Yeah, so. it, it comes down to your personal decisions. That's and right. the problem is the one-child policy left out that mm. personal choice um, out of the equation. So true. May Fong, we appreciate you. Great, uh, great insight, great work. Everybody, go, go, go to her website, May Fong, M-E-I. F-O-N-G dot org, mayfong.org. You can find out more about her book there, One Child, The Story of China's Most Radical Experiment. May, again, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care. Excellent stuff, folks. We'll take a break, and uh, when we come back, continue the learning, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So interesting, uh, that discussion with May Fong. You make one decision, and 30 years later, you got all these problems because of it. See, that is the point of complexity, right? We live in a very complex system and very complex world. So you got to be careful. You can't just make one change without affecting a lot of other things down the road. And that's why when you're in political leadership, when you're trying to you know, manage government, you've got to understand systems and you've got to understand multiple cause, multiple effects. Um, interesting. Man, can you imagine how many lives were changed by a policy, an inability to have a child uh, when you wanted more than one, having to choose and think that – you know, if you're a farmer, you you would want a young son to help you manage the farm. Anyway, tragic. And then uh, notice, too, how these changes become the system. They become the paradigm. They become the habit. So now China can't even necessarily think change the policy, but you can't change the paradigm. You can't change the economy now. That made it. That makes it so people can't even think of having multiple kids now. Can't afford it. Anyway, tragic. But uh, there's another problem going on in Hong Kong, uh, which you won't even believe. Because, you know, Hong Kong, one of the densest population centers in the world with only 30 square miles, 
and home to more than a million people, they're running out of they're running out of room to bury the dead. They're running out of room to bury the dead. And so Bring out your dead. <laughs> little Monty Python. Bring out your dead. <laughs> now they're saying don't bring out your dead. They have nowhere to they have nowhere to put their dead. Can you imagine? So back in the 60s, they were facing a similar problem. And the government encouraged cremation over burial. And over the last 50 years, cremation rate has reached 90%. So in Hong Kong, 90% of people are being cremated. Now the problem is they don't even have a place to deposit the the dead's ashes. They don't even have anywhere to put the ashes. So... Now what? So, And they don't even have anywhere to spread the ashes, yet these families need somewhere to go pay respect. One of the traditions they have is leaving offerings like food and money at their burial site. So they don't, they don't even have that anymore. So the government is stepping up, and they're setting up memorial websites where families can leave virtual offerings. So now they're going to have a, a website. Now, you know, now you can—they'll call it, I don't know— like Facebook, they'll call it like Dead Book, and you'll go visit your family members, the pictures, the memorial, leave your money, leave your your tributes. Another thing they're doing, another laboratory there is trying to figure out how they can take the ashes and with intense heat turn them into gemstones. Isn't that crazy? So all of a sudden now you can wear the gemstone of, you know, Aunt Mildred. Oh, I love that ring. Thanks. Where'd you get it? Oh, it's my Aunt Mildred. <laughs> it's what? Yeah, we just put some intense heat on her and turned her into a ring. Which isn't bad. I mean, can you imagine what Pinterest is going to do with that? So again, you think you have it difficult? You could be in China, right? You could be living in Hong Kong right now, not even having a place to bury your dead. Uh, interesting stuff, folks. Uh, trying to help you see the the world and, and hopefully get you some perspective on the world as well. We're going to take a break. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the can. Again, you can go look it up at uh, on iTunes, on TuneIn, on uh, BYURadio.org. You can download the podcast, share them with your friends. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, your life coach, your guide on the side, top of the morning. This is the program where we do what we can to give you the information, the tools you need to lead your life, lead your family, and hopefully healthy, make you healthy and happier. <laughs> How would that be? Hey, we've got a great uh, show coming up today. Um, on One of our guests is uh, Dr. Tally Shera. She'll be joining us. She's the author of the book, The Optimism Bias. And it's interesting, folks. Uh, we always hear you got to be positive, right? You know, look at the bright side. You might want to be careful of that because uh, humans are already fairly optimistic, and sometimes um, it's causing you some problems. So I'm not telling you to be pessimistic, but we're going to be talking to an expert and a neuroscientist about 
why you might want to pay attention. You might want to pay attention to what's really going on. Hey, um, interesting, uh, interesting, you know, day, Friday. So you can go do all your shopping. Go have all that fun this weekend. Not a lot of football to watch. A little bit of football. A lot of basketball. But really, it's time to shop. <laughs> Which What are you doing? Sounds horrible. You're it's, trying to help the economy? Yeah. I'm trying to do what I can to to help everybody shop. And honestly, can I just give you some advice? You shouldn't okay. be shopping at work. Like on your computer? Yes. At work? Because that could violate your computer policy. Yes. Except here's some good news. According to um, a U.S. appeals court, you you can violate your work's computer policy and it's not a crime. Apparently, your employers might shake their fists when you check Facebook at work, but they can't send you to prison for it. Okay. You can't they, I guess they can't say you're stealing time. Yes, you can get fired. You can get fired because you'll break their policy. They will then fire you, but you can't go to prison. But the simple act of doing something on your computer that's outside of the policy yeah. isn't breaking criminal law. Unless you are breaking criminal law. Unless you do something criminal, right. yes. So according to uh, the U.S. Appeals Court, uh, the ruling was simply breaking corporate computer policies isn't against the law by all by itself. You have to commit a specific crime to get in trouble. Prosecutors had to argue that an NYPD officer was violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act by looking up people for non-police purposes. But the court thought that this was an overly broad interpretation. If that's illegal, the court says, millions of ordinary computer users would also be breaking the law. Now, Just because it's a, it's a policy at your work. Well, this is a big deal because how many times did the IRS look up People yes. in their databases. Yes. Now, maybe that is a crime. Right. Or, sure. or the FBI went after uh, Representative uh, Jason Chaffetz. Not the FBI, but the Secret Service. Right. What, they, they looked up Jason Chaffetz's records. Because he was going after them for uh-huh. not doing their job. Now, those may actually be crimes. But you personally, you know, if you work at BYU Broadcasting, you could look at your Facebook page. Right. And See, not be charged and with. The way mine's set up, that's work. There's nothing on there of family or oh, really? any sort of nonsense. Man. It's all news sources. Well, and sports, I'm sure. Oh, the news. Ah, see, so that's how you do it. There you go. Uh, you've put all of your hobbies and your wonderful habits in the category of news. No, no, no. You take everything. Like movies, that... news. Well, those are in there. So yeah, see, so I guess there's you actually don't have and... any hobbies. You just like the news. Yeah, I kind of like seeing chaos. <laughs> I kind of go, hey, there you go again. That's just broken, dude. Yeah. So this case was specifically for this guy. He was a NYPD police officer. Yeah. There were some extenuating circumstances. He did some things. They tried to charge him with a crime, but it was extended from his internet use. Yeah. Not actually doing committing a crime. Well, now notice Garrett's already all over the internet now that I've said that. Yeah. So we've already lost him. So maybe we should pretend like it's a crime that he's surfing. We could. It's too late. And you know what he watches? It's crazy. This is a crime. What's this, I'm for sure, is a crime. Cat videos. All the time. Have, every time I walk in here, Garrett is just looking up another cat video. And the cat's just hanging out. And he's Meow. batting a ball around or something. What are you doing? Yeah. It's a cat. Something's weird. Hey, it's Frank Sinatra's birthday tomorrow, so make sure you celebrate. 
It's also International Mountain Day today. I saw that. <laughs> day to celebrate mountains. And it's like the UN has some day to help us remember the life-giving forces of mountains. Uh, what? Monday will be International Valley Day. Yeah, because that's where you tend to live. Oh, and then next Wednesday, plateaus. plateaus. You got to have your ups, your downs, and your in-betweens, I guess. This yes. Mrs. is coming up. <laughs> it's also Lost and Found Day, which was officially announced November 19th. 2012. It took years to figure out that we needed it. It started in 1805, by the way. Uh, I guess Paris had a lost and found when Napoleon Bonaparte opened the first lost and found office in Paris. So you see this nonsense of lost and found day. Yeah. And then they go back and they, look, Napoleon did it. Napoleon did it. He was the first guy. What? So we lost it apparently from about 1805 to about 2015, 2012. So in 2012, everyone went, oh, lost and found. Interesting. So now, you know. There's a historical precedence for a lost and found box. uh, London, the transport for London's lost property offices collects 130,000 objects every year. Wow. Ranging from obviously like mobile phones and wallets, listen to these, to wedding dresses. Okay. Urns. Urns. Wheelchairs. And even kitchen sinks. Why would you forget a wheelchair or a kitchen sink? Hey, Mabel, where, where did we leave that wheelchair? Aren't you in the chair? Well, I don't remember. Well, honey, you I mean, can't walk without it. <laughs> why would you have a kitchen sink on the subway? So, can you imagine? Well, half the reason is because they're too they're too embarrassed to go call back and say, Ugh, "Have you seen a kitchen sink on the subway?" I, I misplaced the kitchen sink. <laughs> uh, have you seen a marble countertop? Oh. We're building a house in Jersey. Um, anyway, so it could be worse, folks. You could be, you know, looking for your wheelchair. <laughs> It's just, you know, accidents happen. Right. You know, could be worse. Could be worse. Hey, we've got a great show coming up. Uh, Tally Sherritt, Dr. Tally Sherritt will be joining us, author of the book The Optimism Bias. You, are you, you're not a very optimistic person, are you? I, I tend to feel that if you're overly optimistic, you're opening yourself up for disappointment. So you're just trying to protect yourself. Yeah, it's you self-preservation. Use pessimism to yeah. protect yourself. It's a defense mechanism, yeah. yeah I, ex- I expect things... To go wrong so that when they go right, I'm surprised. If they go, yeah, yeah, if they go wrong, ah, I was expecting it. Interesting. We had a guest on several months ago that said that's a very, very negative outlook yeah. and a very bad way to live your life. And you're probably going to die. And I'm over here like, no, I feel great. Everything's wonderful. Dr. Tally Sherritt believes, you know, that we're already inherently optimistic as humans. Probably more yeah. optimistic than we think. But like we'll, most of us think we're the bomb. Like, I mean, are you in the top – would you say you're in the top 25 percent or the bottom 25 percent of drivers? Oh, top 25 percent. I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. Most logical moves right. between lanes. and I mean, I've seen you drive. It's everyone else's fault constantly. <laughs> I've seen you park on the sidewalk. To the point where when I go, oh, in traffic and my kid's in the back seat, he's like, why are they so slow? Yeah, so your son already knows. I don't know, son. I'm teaching them well. People. Why are they so slow? Crazy stuff. Let's get to the headlines, see if there's any optimism there, Terry. Well, we'll see. Thanks, Matt. A new CBS poll finds that most Americans oppose Donald Trump's idea to temporarily stop Muslims from entering the United States. Two-thirds of those questions say it goes against the founding principles of this country. In recent polling, Senator Ted Cruz is gaining ground on Trump. Here's Ted Cruz at a fundraiser on how he feels Donald Trump and Ben Carson will eventually drop in the polls. 
I believe that gravity will bring both of those campaigns down. People are looking for who is prepared to be a commander-in-chief, who understands the threats we face. Who am I comfortable having their finger on the button? Trump is still the number one choice among GOP primary voters, but rival Ted Cruz is also gaining large support. Ted Cruz won a coveted endorsement Thursday from Iowa's most influential Christian activist, effectively locking up the evangelical vote in the nation's first caucus state. Family leader President Bob Vanderplatz told the Des Moines Register that uh, Cruz is the most consistent and principled conservative who has the ability to not only win Iowa, but I believe win the nomination. Wow. So he's got a he's got a believer. There's a believer. Four Republican senators, including presidential candidate and Senator, Senator Ted Cruz, voted against a resolution that affirmed there would be no religious test for people entering the United States. The non-binding amendment was attached to an unrelated security bill that read, "It is the sense of the Senate that the United States must not bar individuals from entering into the United States based on their religion." as such action would be contrary to the fundamental principles on which this nation was founded. Senator Ted Cruz did not attend the vote, but according to Politico, several Democrats grinned visibly when Cruz's proxy vote of no was cast, with one uttering into a hot microphone, oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was just like that. Oh yeah, they went Kool-Aid man. On the Senate vote there. Uh, Dow Chemical, some business news. Dow Chemical Company and DuPont, two of the oldest ah. companies in the U.S., announced to, plans to merge, creating a company valued at about $130 billion. Wow. The company to be called uh, Dow DuPont would then be split into three companies, respectively focused on agricultural products, material sciences, which is plastics, and specialty products. The merger is being sold as a partnership of equals with shareholders of each chemical giant holding 50% of the shares Mm. of the combined company. They need a better name. What were they going to call it? Dow DuPont. Nah, they need to call it Dow Pont. Dow Pont? Plant Dow. Or Dow Du? Pludon Dow. Pludon. (laughs) Dudon to Plow (laughs) Daunt. We need to work on this. Let's. We need to have a brainstorm. Okay, Dow Dupont is what they're going to go with. Yeah, and then somehow we got to mix yeah. that up. Plant Don Do Dow. <laughs> what? <laughs> we need to bring in a marketing expert. Okay, we'll figure that plow, out. Plow Don. Have you seen these hoverboards that y- are out there? Yes, they're a hot Christmas item. I can't say anything, but yes, I have, as and my, as have my children. Really? Yes, but I won't say. Now anything. they're not hoverboards like on Back to the Future that everybody wants. Yeah, no, these are they're they like have wheels. They're they grounded. Call, they call them skateboards, but mm-hmm. they're not skateboards where you ride yeah. them sort of you're standing sideways. Yeah, yeah. The wheels Full are on, on the side. It's kind of like a Segway it's, scooter without the handle. Yeah, or a Jazzy for someone that can stand and right. have balance. So these electric-powered, hand-free skateboard-like things have come, become one of the year's hottest uh, gifts, holiday gifts, are apparently hotter in more ways than one after numerous reports of the devices spontaneously bursting into flames, even burning one family's home down. Oh, boy. In response Thursday, the three biggest U.S. airlines, Delta, American, and United, announced that they will ban the devices from carry-on and checked luggage, joining JetBlue, British Airways, and several other airlines <laughs> who had already instituted a ban. Hoverboards are typically powered by a lithium battery, which have been known to overheat while charging, especially especially if they have any sort of defects. Last month, a Louisiana family had their home burned down after a brand-new hoverboard exploded. There's videos online. In a Washington, I believe, did the Washington State uh, Mall, some guy was out just sort of demoing one of these hoverboards, and it, like, exploded. Was he injured? (laughs) I I don't know. The video kind of stops after the flames start, but uh, you see it just sort of catch fire. 
So, and the problem is there's some that are name brands. Yeah. They may be better. We're not. Yeah. But then there's a bunch of knockoffs. They're less likely to explode. There's a bunch of knockoffs that are out there, and those are the ones apparently they're having some issues. You know, Santa's going to be in a lot of trouble if he starts burning houses down. (laughs) But Santa bought me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's because hoverboards are going to be big. They're big this year. Or they're gone in a couple months. Who knows? Oh, yeah. They'll be, yeah, they'll be gone. Yeah. But it's like a, it's like a, uh, Segway. Yeah. But without the handles. In, in the sense that the way you move it is you tilt forward slightly. Yeah. While still remaining upright. And it just propels you forward. Boy. And one out of 100 gets a lucky explosion. <laughs> there you go. Right around the ankles. Good stuff. See, that's fairly optimistic. Hey, in just a second, we're going to be bringing on our next guest, Dr. Tally Sherritt, author of the book, The Optimism Bias. She's going to be talking to us about the fact that you might want to rethink a little bit your uh, your philosophy on optimism. I mean, you don't have to give it up, but uh, you might want to think it through. You know, ask yourself what you know what's really going on when it comes to being an optimistic person. Does it set you up for more success, more failure? Stick with us; we'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you just got to smile when you hear a little Monty Python. Always look on the bright side of life. Our next guest, um, you know, she's been studying the mind for years. And when you think about it, all of us, you know, we are told to look on the bright side of life. But you've heard that that one, you know, maybe life's not always going to be so positive. Can you always spin a negative situation into a positive one? Is that the healthy thing to do? Um, anyway, there is a lot of information that we can get into with our next guest. Dr. Tali Sherat is the author of The Optimum, Optimism Bias, A Tour of the Irrationally Positive Brain. She um, also uh, has a wonderful TED Talk. If you, if you haven't seen it, go uh, look up Tali on TED Talks. And in 2011, she was a Time Magazine cover story, uh, talked about uh, our brains and the power of our brains. She joins us now, live from London, to talk about uh, optimism. And, uh, and, and is, it, is it always the best thing for us? Dr. Tally Sherratt, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, hello, good morning. Great to have you here. First off, I, I, your book, fascinating to me. I, I love um, this idea of questioning optimism because for, for – for all humans, we're pretty naturally optimistic, aren't we? Um, yes. What we find is that humans, um, about 80% of us, are optimistic. Um, and then we have about 20% of the population that don't seem to have an optimism or optimism bias. And a large part of that 20%, we find, tend to be depressed or mildly depressed. Hmm. Um, and it's not only humans that we see are optimistic. Non-human animals uh, seem to be optimistic as well. And you find it in different cultures, um, in humans. You find it in different ages, and males and females. So it's quite a global phenomenon. So only 20% don't have the bias, and you're calling it a bias. So, so why are humans biased to be optimistic? Why is that our bias? Right. Generally. Well, first of all, I want to say that a bias doesn't mean that, that it's negative. Right. 
Um, so all I mean when I say an optimistic bias is that people tend, on average, to expect things to be better than they, they turn out to be. Hmm. Now, this does not mean that we walk around, you know, happy. Um, it doesn't mean that our expectations are always positive. You can expect the stocks to go down. Um, and then, actually, if you lose more money than you expected, that's an optimism bias. Right. So it just means overestimating positive underestimating negative. People tend to believe the marriage will work out, that they will stay married longer than they do. They tend to believe they will make more money that they, than they do. Take graduate students, for example. So it's been shown that MBA students uh, predict that they're going to make a higher starting salary than they actually end up making. Hmm. Yeah. And it's everywhere, isn't it? Ask why, why would we be? Why would we be like that? Well, there's a lot of positive outcomes to being optimistic, and there's also negative outcomes. So let's start with a positive. So first of all, if you expect things to be good, then you're not so stressed. Stress is reduced, anxiety is reduced, and that's really good for our health. Um, so it's been shown that all of be, being equal, optimists live longer then non-optimists or pessimists. Optimists uh, survive longer and um, they are just less likely to, to be ill. Um, cancer patients, all else being equal, survive seven months longer um, if they're optimistic than pessimistic. Wow. And if we expect things to go our way, we're going to put more effort into it, right? If you think you're going to get that promotion, if you think your startup will work out, then you put more effort, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, it's not going to work out exactly like you imagined it to be, but if you have negative expectations, if you're pessimistic, you simply don't get out of bed, and that's what we find in depression. So we may have just evolved uh, this optimism bias simply because it keeps us at it. It keeps us in the game. Yeah, absolutely. It keeps us motivated. Um, and it causes us to explore, right? Yeah. If you don't think there's anything good out there to seek out, well, you're not going to go out and try to find it. And if you think back to our ancestors, what drove them to kind of go out of Africa to explore the rest of the world? They had to have some kind of positive expectations. What drives you to go out of your cave to hunt? You have to expect that you're more likely to find food than not. Uh, on balance, of course, we also we need to take the risk sometimes, um, even if the probabilities are low. But of course, there's the negative outcomes, as you probably see. You know, if we underestimate our risk, then we might not take precautionary actions, right? If we think oh, I'm going to be fine, um, then maybe I won't wear a helmet, um, maybe I won't go to medical screenings. Mm. So those are the negative consequences, and you see them in financial markets as well. Over-optimistic predictions can lead to financial bubbles, to market collapse. But I think that the reason that we have evolved to be optimistic is probably because the positive outweighs the negative. Yeah, it serves us. I mean, it really. I mean, the lists are there. I guess that's. It makes sense too why so many people keep, you know, playing the lottery, or why gamblers. Why it's so addictive for certain behaviors because we always just think, oh, the next one, the next one, the next hand will be different. The next one will be different. Mm-hmm. And and the thing about the lottery, for example, people buy lottery tickets. Yes, maybe they overestimate how likely they are to win. But there's another reason to buying the lottery ticket, which is. Once you buy it, you can then imagine what will happen if you 
do get the money, right? Yeah. So you have this this anticipation, which makes you feel good. So you're buying a few days, maybe, of good feeling. Um, and the positive kind of outcomes of anticipation are important, too. For example, a study at Harvard showed that if you go on vacation, the day that you're most happy is not the day that you're on vacation, but the day before vacation, because that's when you're anticipating all the good stuff. Interesting. Um, and, you know, maybe the vacation is not as good as you thought it would be, but at least you had this positive anticipation before you actually got on the plane. So, so the benefit is not – it's not always the end benefit. It's There's a means to optimism, which is anticipation, and it's – I guess it's just positivity. It's just feeling more – dopamine or whatever is that is that what it where it is in the brain what do we feel yeah um well just kind of a side note dopamine doesn't really make us feel good so if you give people um l-dopa which is um can enhance your dopamine it doesn't really make you feel good but it can enhance anticipation of good stuff Mm. um which can then make you feel better but um what we find in the brain is that an important um, factor for optimism is how we process information. So you can say, okay, people are optimistic, but how could that really be that you are optimistic if you go throughout life and experiencing not only positive events but also negative events, right? right. You've been through a few relationships that haven't worked out, so why do you think this one will? Or you read the newspapers and you know financial markets may go down as well as up and still you have these positive expectations. So that is quite bustling, right? We should learn from information. Well, what we find in the brain is that the brain processes positive information, information that's better than what you expected. It encodes that much better than negative information. Hmm. Um, And so if we encode positive information, for example, if a a doctor tells you, you know, you're actually healthier than what you thought, or if uh, your manager tells you you've done much better than, than what I expected, well, that positive information is encoded really well and it changes your beliefs about yourself and your beliefs about your future. When you get negative information, it's not that it doesn't affect your beliefs. So if your manager says, well, you haven't done really well on this project, it's not that you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I did well, or you know, but you don't change your beliefs about those, yourself that much. Um, and that's been shown in many studies. A really cool study was where um, two behavioral economists brought in a bunch of, of students and asked them to rate everyone on how attractive everyone else was. Mm-hmm. And then they gave each person uh, a piece of information about how other people saw them. Well, when people learned that other people believed they were more attractive than they expected, they straight away changed their belief. They said, oh, well, I'm you know pretty hot. But if they got information saying that they're not as attractive as they thought, they tend to say, well, this is subjective, and they didn't really change their view of themselves as much. Interesting. So when I sit and think about how we communicate with other people, is if I'm too negative, does it decrease my influence with somebody? Absolutely. That's a really good point. And I think a good lesson to take away from this is that you want to highlight the positive possible outcomes rather than the negative. So, for example, if you take, um, you know, warnings on cigarette packets. So it's been shown that these warnings, they don't do much to have people quit smoking, right? All, you know, smoking can give you cancer and so on. People see these warnings and they say, huh, okay, I'll be fine. You know, yes, smoking kills, but mostly it kills someone else. 
Um, but you might want to highlight the positive aspects of no, not smoking, right? If you don't smoke, your skin will be nicer. Mm. Or tell a kid, well, if you don't smoke, you're more likely to be on the basketball team. And that may grab people's attention more than just highlighting the negative. Oh, wow. I mean, again, again that kind of just seems like common sense, except so many times we, we – and that's not just being positive and nice. That's actually – letting the brain do what it naturally wants to do. The brain wants to look good. The brain wants to feel better about its skin. Interesting. Man, Tally, this is a, this is a life work. Let's take a break. I want to come back and just continue the discussion about how, how else our optimism, pessimism might be impacting our relationships. How does our brain work when it comes to optimism? More with Dr. Tally Sherratt in just a minute. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and author of the book, The Optimism Bias. Very, very interesting stuff. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone uh, is our is our guest, uh, Dr. Tally Sherritt. Uh, she is um, currently actually in London and um, is an associate professor at the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University College London and a Welcome Trust Fellow. Uh, Tally is also the author of the book, The Optimism Bias and co-editor of The Neuroscience of Preference and Choice. And uh, she joins us today to continue uh, teaching us about optimism and kind of the human bias towards optimism. Tally Sherratt, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to have you. There's a quote uh, that you that you um, are attributed to that says, "Hope isn't irrational. No, hope isn't rational. So why are humans wired for it? What, what do you mean by that?" Well, um, the word I guess the word rational meaning not accurate. So yeah. we hope for something and um, or we expect something and then it doesn't happen. And again and again and again we expect good stuff and we hope, really happen, we hope for it. We still expect the other. Yeah, and it doesn't happen. So one may say, well, that's not rational. Why don't we change our expectations, right? When things don't really go our way, right. we should learn that, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, but on the other hand, as we discussed earlier, having hope, and even more of that, having expectations of what we hope will, will come about helps us, right? I mean, there's this saying that says, you know, if you if you hope for the gold, you, you may get the silver, you know, but yeah. if you don't hope for any of it, well, you'll get nothing. You don't try. Um, and so that's kind of the basis of, of why optimism tends to be beneficial. Is, is there a way that we can... Um can become more realistic and still maintain optimism. Is there a way to control this? It's very hard to control it, but it's also very hard to make it go away. So um, the optimism bias is kind of an illusion, an illusion that our brain plays, makes us believe things which are not really there. And that's true for optimism, which is kind of a cognitive bias, but it also is true for lots of visual biases, right? We tend to see the world, it's not really how, how it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when people show us, hey, look, it shows us the data, shows us everything, there is a bias, we still, it's hard to really kind of burst the bubble. But at the same time, 
we can acknowledge that these biases exist and so take actions to protect ourselves. So we, we still maintain our optimism, but at the same time, we can have a plan B. Um, a good example is the British government. So in what they call a green book, which is a book with recommendations for project appraisers, they say there's an optimism bias which causes people to expect projects to cost less than they end up costing mm -hmm. and expect projects to take shorter time than they end up taking and you know we know this is in our own life if you've ever renovated your house takes longer costs more um, you know planned a wedding same thing and they say well because of that every budget in the government should be adjusted to what they call an optimism bias hmm. and they did that for the 2012 london olympics and relative to other Olympics, it was actually on budget. So we can do these things. We can acknowledge, okay, we have expectations which are not as accurate and realistic, um, but we can maintain those expectations at the same time take all of these protective actions. Yeah, that's powerful. Are some humans more optimistic? So their, their optimistic bias you know, um, equation would need to – you need to add 50% to any budget, while others might only need to add 12 percent. Yeah, it's a scale, right? We can go all the way from the extreme optimist um, to the mild optimist, and actually most of us are mild optimists. Hmm. That's most of the population. And then we can go to people without a bias and people with, some people with pessimistic bias, especially people with depression. So they expect things to be worse than they end up being. And also within in each individual, we can be more optimistic about one aspect of our life and less about another aspect. Because although we do learn better from positive events and negative, our experience in life matters, right? If, still, if things go wrong again and again and again, you're going to learn. Maybe you won't learn a lot, but you will learn. So different aspects of our lives um, can have different um, we can have different expectations about and our age matters as well oh wow that yeah that um, the most optimistic are kids and teenagers and the elderly it is in midlife that we kind of lose our optimism a little bit so the bias is still there but it's quite small in middle age and then it starts off pretty big kids goes smaller and smaller, we kind of lose it in midlife, but then it starts enhancing again. And happiness goes the same way. So happiness is quite high, in the same logical way. Happiness is high in kids and teenagers, goes down, hits rock bottom around your 40s or 50s, but then on average it starts going up again. Huh. And that's been shown around the world. 70,000 people from 70 countries, um, that's kind of the way that it's, it's what we, you know, midlife crisis. Does, then, does happiness, uh, is it a byproduct of optimism, I'm assuming, too? The two are very related. They're yeah. correlated, right? There's a correlation between optimism and happiness. And we assume that optimism does lead to happiness because we anticipate good things. It makes us happy. But there's, you know, a complex relationship between the two. Is the brain well, – what have you learned, Tally, about optimism that, that, made, that still makes you go, wow, huh? That, that, I mean, you've been at this for years. You, you're a pro in this. Is there anything that you've learned about this in your studies that really surprises you or stands out well, as a big aha? I was aha? see that we can see these kind of positivity biases in animals. People are been, have been able to show it um, in mice and birds and pigs. 
Um, so in many animals, of course, you can't ask, you know, a pig or a bird, do you expect right. to find love or do you expect to um, have, you know, um, to make lots of money? Um, but there's sophisticated ways that researchers use to figure out what the animals expect. And you see the bias in animals as well. So I, th- I think that's quite huge. And the other thing that is quite interesting is how the bias actually changes with the environment. So, for example, if you put people under stress, the bias is reduced. Hmm. But then it can go, it can come back when, once you know stress is, is taken out. So if we bring people in the lab, we stress them out by saying, you know, you're going to have to make a presentation. We're going to videotape you and judge you. People are stressed out, and then we test them, and the bias and how they process information and how they expect the future to be is not there for a short amount of time. Wow. And so we adapt. You can, you know, this is, it could be a good thing when you're stressed out. It is maybe a, a sign for us that there's dangers out there and we should kind of look out for the bad information yeah. as well. Which is maybe, I guess, why it goes down in middle age because we're probably all more stressed with children, that, with yeah. life, with jobs, budgets. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you see in optimism and relationships? Um, I mean, I'm assuming there's a there's an interesting correlation between my my spouse's level of optimism and mine and our ability to kind of negotiate our two views does does that change depending on who you're with yeah that's a good question um and i don't have a scientific answer for you i don't know any data suggesting one way or the other but you could imagine it can go both ways mm-hmm. right you could imagine that if your partner is optimistic and so you might you know go along and two people who are slightly optimistic can kind of enhance each other's optimism, right? Get all enthusiastic. Um, That's probably true in the workplace as well. Um, But you can also imagine maybe the reverse, that if someone is pessimistic, that you feel that you need to kind of counter that with your optimism to convince them why things will be okay. And so it's also interesting whether, you know, I think in general research shows that people are attracted to people who are like them. Right, and so although I, I don't know data specifically about optimism, we do know that you know political views, personality types, demographics, people tend to end up with people who are like them. So I would assume that that's true for yeah. optimism and pessimism. Because you're trying, I guess, yeah, you don't want to. If you're a, if you're an optimist, you don't want to deal with a negative vibe every day. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, that would just ruin the date. Hey, um, talk about religion. Is have you, is there any research? I mean, I, I it seems like to me, uh, maybe people that are you know more religious or you know go to church might be more optimistic just naturally, or yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think religion is basically so successful throughout, you know, centuries and centuries, successful as in getting people to be religious because it brings about optimism, mm-hmm. right? Um, the message of religion in many, many religions is an optimistic one. If you behave in a certain way, well, there'll be good outcomes. And, you know, some religions suggest that after life there is another life, and that's, you know, a very mm-hmm. optimistic view. And I think because religion taps into this basic need of humans is why um, so many people in the world throughout so long um, have gone that way. Yeah. Do you sense, I guess if it's 20% of the population, this must not be the case, that are, are there some countries that are just more optimistic? 
than well, other the countries. Is, yeah, the difference is how people see themselves more than how they really are. Uh-huh, right. So because optimism is an illusion, we are not aware of our own optimism. Right. right? An optimism bias would not be an optimism bias if we knew it was an optimism bias. Yeah. So the difference that we find is that, and, and this is just observation, um, is that in certain countries, optimism is, is supposedly a good thing, right? So American culture, for example, People want to be optimistic, right? Considered a good thing. And so people also see themselves more likely as optimists. Hmm. In other culture, maybe France or to some extent um, UK, more in the older times, um, people tend to think that optimism is not necessarily a good thing. They yeah. feel maybe it's, you know, it's naive. not seeing reality in the face. Um, and so in those countries, maybe people tend to not want to see themselves as optimists. Mm. They, they especially, so a lot of this research has been done in London, and people come in and say, well, no, I'm a realist, you know, I'm a pessimist. But then when you test them, when you write down their expectations, record it, and then look at the outcomes later on, or look at how they process information, you find we do not find any differences in these countries. Wow. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating subject. Um, as we wrap it up, uh, Tally, what 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 would you want everyone to take away from your work? And you know, if there's one thing that we can all remember about our optimism, and I guess maybe how to benefit and use it to our advantage, what what would you say that that we need to focus on? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we know we have. Um, if we know that we have an optimism bias. Um, it can help us in making decisions, but I think it's only to some extent. And the biggest thing, the biggest advantage of knowing that there's an optimism bias is more about understanding other people. Hmm. Um, because there's what, what's known as a bias blind spot, which is you can see the bias in other people, but it's a bit hard to see it in yourself. So if we know that other people have an optimism bias, that really can change the way that we communicate with other people. I love that. No, um, true, huh? Because I've got to adapt. And 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 just instead of just react and and be offended by your bias or whatever, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your work. It's great. It's uh, I think it's a great read. The optimism bias is the name of the book. A tour of the irrationally positive brain. Doctor Tally Sherat, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Interesting stuff, isn't it? And like again, we wouldn't know it if we knew it. If I knew I had a bias and I was constantly paying attention to it. Interesting. We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, when we come back, just continue the discussion. See uh, see how it affects you. Think about it. How are you and the way you think impacting the people around you? How do you communicate based on your optimism bias? This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. So are you an optimist or a pessimist? 80% apparently of us are optimists, 20% pessimists. But man, did you know, I I had no idea that we, you know, our head is so, it's so biased. We are, we see so many things um, and maybe more positively than we ought to. I I mean, I think in a way that's kind of healthy, right? If if you saw the truth of, for example, how hard it would be really to raise a child, you might not ever want one. I've always kind of thought God, you know, gave us a nice dose of chemistry just to keep us from 
you know, not doing the hard things. That's why we're always excited about our new job. And then that chemistry lasts, whatever, six months. And after six months, you know, it's just you're just working at the mall selling corn dogs. Before you're like, holy cow, hot dog on a stick. I get a corn dog and lemonade. But in the end, the optimism, I think it gets us it gets us to do things. I think there's something almost spiritual about the hope side of it. Uh, it's interesting that she equated um, optimism to this hope, this hope of the future. And I loved how uh, um, Tally was talking about the fact that that hope actually leads to anticipation. For example, Christmas is coming up, and it might be that the best day – and the most enjoyable part of Christmas might be the day before Christmas because that's at the apex of the anticipation. And then eventually when Christmas comes, wah, 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 sometimes it just goes away. Have you ever handed your, you know, your kid their great Christmas present and this is what you get? Oh, it's not firing. A little cricket's action. When you think about it, honestly, truly, in your heart, in your head – what is it like to live with you? Is your optimism bring more positivity to the day? Does it bring more light? Or does it bring more, ugh? And I don't need you to be naive. I don't need you to be, you know, setting yourself up to be harmed or hurt. But you do live longer. You are less stressed. You know, you tend to survive uh, that whole example she gave about cancer. Cancer patients that are optimistic, live seven months longer than those that aren't. Now, some would say, well, do you really want to live seven months longer in horrible conditions? I don't know. But I bet your kids would like you to. Sometimes optimism helps us to get through some of the difficult times, doesn't it? Helps us to give, get through some of the, uh, the more mundane parts of life. Man, listen to this guy. This guy had total op, uh, total uh, optimism. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, authorities say a man wanted for failing to signal a lane change ran from Tulsa police. So he's outrunning the police. He gets away, obviously an optimist, and he stopped to get a haircut. He did not want to go to the pokey with long hair. Before being arrested, the Tulsa World reports that the 27-year-old man was arrested Sunday on several complaints, including eluding police after a felony conviction and possession of a firearm after a felony conviction. Police say they saw the man's car cross several lanes of traffic and a police officer tried to pull him over. They say after the pursuit, the man got out of his car and ran to an apartment complex. Police later found the man inside an apartment. Officers noted that the man sported a freshly clipped head with extremely short hair, despite reportedly having a large amount of hair when running from his car. Oh, see, he was trying to sneak away. He just thought a little haircut would get him out of this thing. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Got to be careful. If you're going to be a criminal, <laughs> might do better to be an optimist until you get to prison. Then you're going to want to be a pessimist. Uh, unless you got a long sentence, then you're going to want to be an optimist. See how we need it, and we use it the way we want it and we need it. So uh, we're going to take a break. That's the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Can't do it without you. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you get ready for the weekend and uh, to live a healthier, happier life. Stick with us. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. It's Friday, folks. It's Friday. Sorry, I was distracted. Someone was outside our studio windows yeah. with cookies. <gasps> and I was interested in waving them in. I was thinking we would want to get them to stop. Yeah, but apparently they went a different direction. So. That sounds like a job for the producers. And it was one of the uh, the women in HR Yes, that come down for counseling sessions, apparently. Yes, I and need so to you talk could to them today. manipulate them into handing over cookies. Maybe they'll come in. Maybe. Oh. They're hey. putting cookies in the break room oh, today. I yeah, this oh. is 11 o'clock. That's what it is. Oh, this is uh, it's the it's the break. The right. student producer is that what it would be called? I guess I don't know because we weren't invited. No, they don't let us in. I'm invited. Yeah, I know. Hey, uh, great news! By the way, today you may not know this. Um, a lot of people aren't waking up today knowing this, but it is the eve of Frank Sinatra's birthday. It's Frank Eve. It's Frank Eve. All right. He will be. And so I Listen to that. The final Apparently, he didn't like this song. He didn't like this song. Yeah, he loathed I'll this classic hit. He always thought that the song was self-serving, self-indulgent. Well, yeah, I'll do it my way. But it's stuck, he said. He's stuck, and he couldn't get it off his shoe. Okay. But you know how many funerals have probably played this song? Oh, yeah. sang this song? Mm. Yeah, 100 years old uh, tomorrow, he would have been. He passed away, um, but he's lucky to be alive. He was a 13-pound baby. Well, he's lucky to be born. Frank was a chubby baby. Right, he was a he born was a on the on the kitchen floor. By the way, they had to use forceps, which eventually scarred his face. So, so he was called Scarface as a kid. In, as a kid, which yeah, come on, kids. And then it messed. It, it like punctured an eardrum or something. Yeah, when they used the forceps, which just brings up the idea that w- were the doctors just really. They were more aggressive back then. Is there a bedside manner when it comes to use of forceps or just go for it? <laughs> I think what it was back then, it really was like life or death. Yeah. Because, I mean, now we have, oh, let's take her in for cesarean. Yeah. Just get that baby out of there. Now? No, grab those forceps. <laughs> and get Jimmy. He's strong. Come in here, Jimmy. Just give it a tug. Can you, can you the baby pull will come on out. this? Go ahead. Here's some other crazy statistics or information about him. The Rat Pack. Uh, he, he he didn't. They didn't use that name. Sinatra's famous gang of friends, which included singers Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., the comic Joey Bishop, and actor Peter Lawford, were given their famous nickname by Hollywood star Lauren Bacall. But they always preferred to call themselves the Summit. The Summit. We need a name for what? For our group, the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, we, oh. we need a name like like not the Rat Pack. The A Team. Mm. How about oh, sorry. the brain trust? Mm, that seems a little far-reaching. <laughs> we have to have something we could possibly live up to. Um, brain trust is asking a little too much. Uh, how about <laughs> scoundrels? Dirty, rotten scoundrels. Mm. That seems a little negative. The associates? The hateful eight? No, that's really negative. I'm just taking movie theme, movie titles now. You will come back to that. Let's the Avengers. That yeah, let's call it mm. the Avengers. The Justice League. 
Uh, Clueless in Seattle. Mm, No. We're not in Seattle, and we're not clueless. Speak for yourself. We have half a clue. Hey, uh, he had a hotel in California on the California-Nevada border. It was called the Cal Neva Lodge. (laughs) Cal Neva Lodge. Okay. And casino in Lake Tahoe. It, you know, it it was a resort that spanned two states. Uh, Sinatra hated The Godfather. In the classic mafia novel, The Godfather, later made into an Oscar-winning series of films, the entertainer Johnny Fontaine receives help with his career from organized crime figures. Although the book's author, Mario Puzo, denied that the character was inspired by Sinatra, the singer always surrounded was always surrounded by rumors of mafia links, and he took an insult to that. Yeah. When the two met in Los Angeles restaurant Chasen's in 1970, Sinatra screamed, I ought to break your legs. Which sounds very mafia-like. Sounds totally like the mafia. <laughs> I got some friends that'll break your legs. I think maybe that's why he was surrounded by yeah. mafia talk. He was also a fuss about red carpets. That was odd. I read that, yeah. You know, that's, I mean, you know, when he'd go, he wanted a red carpet from his dressing room to the stage, but it had to be tacked down. With, uh, like, nails no more than 18 inches apart. And I guess he was known to, like, pull out a ruler or a tape measure to make sure that they had lived up to the clause in the contract. The contract. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, it's a little over the top. Oh, Frank. But, hey, if you, you want what you want, right? Right. He like wanted the long... it his way. He, yeah. He got it his way. By the way, uh, he never learned to read music, which tells you. You can be a, you can be a musician. You can be a talented artist and not know music. Sure, and that was before they had all the technology. I mean, look at now. Most of what music we have now is karaoke. So, mm, love it. The person gets up and sings, and there's music because someone made it on a computer somewhere. Yeah. Now, so you could either have my way, that classic, or right. With Adina Menzel, what was her? What did he? What did, what's his name call her? Uh, Travolta made up a whole name for her. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. Anyway, happy birthday to Frank Sinatra. May he rest in peace. So to celebrate, you know, listen to Frank. Listen to Frank. Hey, uh, we're gonna get to the news in a second. Before we do that, though, um, Rod Gustafson's coming up in the show. We'll be talking about a couple of weekend releases. Uh, it, you know. Thor versus Moby Dick. Thor versus Moby Dick in the heart of the sea. It's not really Thor. It would be awesome if it was. And uh, a, a Matt Townsend show favorite, Krampus. Yes. <laughs> we watched the trailer. Krampus is the anti-Santa. It came out, what, a couple weeks ago? But we haven't talked to yeah. Rodney. Oh, it's, the weirdest, two, so. it's the weirdest movie. <laughs> I just watched the trailer, and it's just flat out weird. So we'll talk to Rod, find out about those two movies. Then we'll be um, talking with the producers, finding out about other traditions around the holidays. Uh, Kwanzaa, do you know much about that? We'll be getting into that for a minute. Uh, And then, of course, the guys from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's happening in the search for a head uh, coach. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry? Thanks, Matt. With talks stalled over a $1.1 trillion omnibus spending bill on just a day before the government funding runs dry, the Senate voted Thursday to keep federal agencies open for business through mid-next week. The five-day continuing resolution approved by voice vote lasts through Wednesday. The House is expected to follow suit today with an identical stopgap measure. 
Americans are more fearful of terrorist attack than any other time since the terror attacks of September 11, 2001, according to a new poll. An overwhelming amount of Americans believe the country is doomed to suffer another attack, the latest New York Times CBS poll has found. 44% say it is very likely to happen in the next few months. That is the highest in Times or CBS polling since the weeks following the 2001 terrorist attacks, reports the New York Times. Uh, President Obama reversed course on federal education policy Thursday, signing a bill to curtail the federal government's role in education from kindergarten through high school and instead allow states to set their own standards, calling the bipartisan Every Student Succeeds Act a Christmas Miracle. Obama said the law would give states more flexibility in raising student achievement while maintaining a federal role for ensuring that all students have the opportunity to get a quality education. The new law expressly prohibits the Education Department from imposing the Common Core model. God bless us, everyone. Which has been controversial. Yeah. Because they try to teach you new math, and then parents are... Have you seen these uh, people will post pictures online of their kid's math problem? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the parents just solve the problem, (laughs) but then the kid's like, no, 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 this is how you do it. And then there's some abstract way of coming from a different direction to get the answer. It's like, why don't you just go one plus one equals the answer instead of this whole other... Oh, man. Mind-warping way of coming to what they're trying to set up for future... Yeah, future gen. They've got to yeah. learn. Interesting. P- people didn't grasp it well, so they've sent it back to the states to let them figure it out. Good. President Obama has directed his team to uh, complete a proposal aimed at expanding background checks on gun buyers without the approval of Congress, which always goes well. Mm-hmm. Obama is seeking to finalize a set of recommendations on what more the administration can do on its own to save lives from gun violence, and those recommendations will include making sure we do everything we can to keep guns out of the wrong hands. This from White House advisor Valerie Jarrett. She said it at a national gun violence vigil in Washington, D.C. So we'll see where that goes. A petition to ban Donald Trump. We talked about it yesterday in the United Kingdom. There's a petition, and it had 100,000 uh, people had signed the petition to, to ban Donald Trump from right. the uh, the UK. Um, it's been out there for a couple of days. It is swell. It, the 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 names on it, it's up to four hundred seventy five thousand votes, in making it the most popular petition ever on a UK government site. Wow! People are just flocking to sign their name to this thing. <laughs> the British government has the power to bar people considered a threat to public safety or national security or those with criminal convictions. In the past, the UK has denied entry to a variety of people, including boxer Mike Tyson. Really? For his past criminal yeah. issues. I don't Plus, know if he's he still was, on the list. He, but, yeah, he was scary. Well, he's biting people's ears off right. and all kinds of stuff. Once a guy's got a taste for your ear, you got to ban him. And, uh, and this was interesting. According to a long-term study of nearly 720,000 middle-aged women recently published in The Lancet, happiness appears to have nothing to do with your longevity. Oh, really? Researchers asked participants to rate their happiness and answer questions about their health and lifestyle, such as how much they smoked, their relationship status, and their levels of stress. While women's happiness initially seemed to be linked to their mortality rates, women who were happy lived longer – once the researchers had adjusted for health factors, they found that there was no statistically significant difference between the happy and unhappy women. Hmm. So it says happiness apparently has nothing to do with how long you live, the study says, but happy people can hold on hold on to this at least. It actually it's pretty difficult to truly understand the effects of happiness in part because people have different idea of what happiness sure, is, sure. what it means and what it feels like. Here's what I think. So how do you chart it? You can't. Well, I think ha- happiness my happiness does determine how long I let you live. Okay, that's a different way of looking at it. Right? So yeah. 
if you if you don't make mama happy, let's just say you're not going to live very long. Right. No, that seems very cynical. Wasn't there a song that told us what happiness is? You know, like happiness is. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Garrett! Hey, G Dog. Hey, this isn't some sort of talent show. Back her down, Garrett. Garrett's new to the show. Um, Garrett's filling in for Ben, and Garrett just started breaking into song. And when we don't do that on the show here, Garrett. Wow. Well, yeah, keep there's, your, a, there's rules. My yeah. bad. I yeah. guess I was raised differently. And yeah. to, to answer your question, no, there was no song that way ever. Yeah. Ever. Ugh. Okay, maybe it's one artist's interpretation. I apologize for it's okay. art. It's okay. Well, well art, <laughs> art, I... Art. Some I, person's art, other person's offense. I, I don't want to be negative or anything, but that wasn't art. <laughs> wow. Garrett, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in the post-meeting. Just go over the rules. Yeah, post-show meeting. Maybe um, I should post them on the wall. Yeah, I thought the singing would seem obvious. Uh, or whatever. That was like, it was like talk rapping. Yeah, it was all right. It was, it was a little... Okay. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I didn't. I didn't go full out. I mean, if I'd gone full out, no, 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 no. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. Let's just. Uh, we're going to take a break. If you would have really opened up the lungs, then, yeah. So we're going to take a break. We got to get to Rod Gustafson. We're going to be talking movies in a minute. That way, you won't have to put you through any more music. Uh, we're getting to the movies with Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Oh, welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Rod is with me right now. Rod Gustafson is with me from ParentPreviews.com. We uh, we always surprise Rod when we're going to come on the air. Hello, Rod. How you doing, brother? I am doing just fine. Thank you, Matt. It's great to have you and your great work you're doing there at ParentPreviews.com, which if, if you are new uh, and you don't know about Rod and what they're doing, as a parent, you know, you send your kids to the movies. They might go with their friends. But and or you might take them, but a lot of times you don't know what is going to be in the movie. You don't know uh, is it is it going to be appropriate and the right uh, kind of stuff that you want your kids to be watching. So Rod and his group they go and prepare a, a preview of the movie so parents can go in with I think information right. Yeah, yeah, and with the heads up. So you know you you just you hate being surprised with when you've got your kids with you, especially and suddenly you know there's a. It was something horrible happens on the screen. That's never good. It's so true. And and we need it. I mean, and then I love also you get into other things, questions that can be asked uh, to carry the conversation and the, the learnings of from the movies a, a lot farther. So uh, today we're going to be reviewing two movies and fill me in on these. Uh, one of them, well, let's do In the Heart of the Sea first. The other movie we'll be looking at is Krampus. And I saw the preview to Krampus and it just... It just ruined my day. Um, but I, w- I want you to talk to me about In the Heart of the Sea. Well, okay, Matt. So first of all, I have to reveal that I have never been a huge book reader. It's no wonder I'm a movie critic. Yeah, right. So I have never read Moby Dick. Have you read Moby Dick? Now? I have, but like years ago, right? So 20 years yeah. ago. Okay. Well, I would love to be able to tell you how much of Moby Dick is reflected in the heart of the sea, 
but I can't. So I'm just <laughs> going to go for it on the movie alone. Now, the what is interesting is there is a true story that actually happened, and there is reasonably good documentation of this story. There was a ship, a whaling ship called the Essex, that uh, just had a terrible time. I believe it was in 1820 when it a whale actually attacked the ship, which mm. was quite unusual sunk the Essex. Uh, most of the crew wound up being stranded at sea for weeks on end, and some of them made it back and told their terrible tale. And that is that story became the inspiration for Moby Dick. It also became the inspiration for this movie. And this movie is made by Ron Howard, who is actually a very capable director. Yeah. I love some of his movies, but then I've had some others that haven't worked quite so well. Uh, and in this story, the story opens up with with the um, author of of Moby Dick, of course, played by an actor, but Herman Melville, coming to this man who was one of the young survivors of the Essex, and now he's he's quite elderly. It's 1850. And he wants to know the story of what actually happened. And so then we go back in time to this story. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so from a parenting perspective, of course, fair amount of violence in this movie because it is a traumatic sh- shipwreck and we watch this, these, this whale attack the ship and all of that business. Um, there's also some cannibalism, which was actually documented mm. uh, as one of the things that took place during the shipwreck. But here's what's interesting about the story, Matt, and I, 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 I obviously am going to come across with a little bit of a bias here, but some people may like this aspect of the movie. There is a, a very direct parallel environmental message on two topics, of course, whaling, mm. uh, because we one of the most graphic depictions in the movie is them butchering the whale that they do manage to snag, and of course, they're after the oil from the whale. But the other environmental message is about oil itself, because Nantucket is where the Essex um, was from, and Nantucket depended on whale oil for their economy. And so there is a very direct parallel um, to some of the prices that we pay for the oil industry today. And so depending if you live in Alberta, like I do, which is the oil capital of Canada, or Texas, you might see (laughs) this movie through a different perspective. Interesting. A little angle there, huh? Yeah, it is, and a surprising angle, which I'm almost certain was not in the angle of Moby Dick. pretty sure that wasn't in the Moby Dick, yeah. Well, and I don't know, Matt, if you remember Moby Dick well enough, but here's what's unusual about the story and why I think this is not going to do really well at the box office, because... Uh, for the most part, when we go watch a movie, we want a clear-cut protagonist. And it took me about an hour after I saw this movie. I thought, what's strange about this movie? What is strange about this movie is uh, the whale hmm. and the environment is the protagonist in this film. And and the antagonist are the humans. Oh, and wow. usually, usually when we get these adventures, it's man against the sea. Mm-hmm. and supposed to have empathy for our human characters we don't really in this movie it's the other way around we are supposed to be having empathy for the whale and and for the environment as well so a little bit of a different twist on this what, one. what grade did you give this one b minus on this one certainly you know young children are going to there's some very scary scenes and disturbing scenes in this movie uh for teens 
you know, probably maybe okay, depending on, again, the violence is the biggest issue. There is some profanity in this film, uh, mainly what we call mild and moderate profanities, but we don't have the sexual expletive and that type of thing. Mm. And it's quite light on sexual content as well. So okay. there you have it. But a little bit long. You know, Matt, the other problem, once you're lost at sea, it makes <laughs> a little bit of a boring movie. What it do really you do does. Yeah, there's not a lot of visual uh, yeah. probably. Uh, by the way, speaking of scary and disturbing, um, the other movie is Krampus. That, yes. I could not, just watching the preview, I couldn't tell if this was a comedy, a tragedy. I couldn't tell. It was It was so confusing for me. Well, and that's one of the problems with this movie. It's a marketing nightmare, uh, quite literally. Um, you, first of all, it's another dysfunctional family Christmas movie. You heard me talk about that a, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. with Love the Coopers. Only this one throws in a horror movie twist as well. And the problem is it's got a fairly young cast or well, a lot of younger cast members. So we see children in this movie. We see images of Santa Claus and snowmen, depending on which trailer and what clips you've watched. Parents, if you think for a minute that you should bring your seven-year-old to this film, please, please think again. Uh, Krampus is a very scary movie um, for young people. Sadly, for older people looking for a good scary movie, I wouldn't recommend it to them either <laughs> because uh, for older audiences, it really is quite predictable and not all that scary, but it's very dark. And uh, it's about two families who don't get along. They wind up getting together for the holidays. Their kids are arguing with each other and bullying one another. And so finally Krampus comes along, and he's the anti-Santa Claus. Right. Starts de- it starts destroying the neighborhood, and they all get trapped in this house in this huge blizzard. And uh, that's basically what happens. And they start getting killed off one by one. Ugh. So a nice Christmas movie. It, it is the weirdest. I mean, it's, honestly, it's just it's confusing. It's, it's, Yes. Well, uh, Rod, I appreciate it. It sounds like we're losing your audio. And so we're going to take a break. But uh, we appreciate Rod Gustafson and the great work that he does. Um, Go to his website, parentpreviews.com. We'll come back with our producers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. the best time of the year I don't know if welcome back snow. friends mm. tell me this doesn't just bring back Have memories joining us uh, two of the great producers that help behind the scenes on this show uh, Elizabeth Miller aka Lizzie Liz dog Miller yes. and uh, Crumpus Danes Crumpus oh, no. <laughs> uh, Danes how are you Crump just great. <laughs> Today we're talking about the holidays, and we're going to do a multicultural view of the holidays because there's so many holidays that hit around and, and traditions and cultural traditions that hit at this time of the year. We wanted to do a review. And I thought, who better to do it than Liz? And then Liz brought Crumpus, <laughs> which I think adds a lot to the show. It, Crump- was, it was difficult to get Crumpus after her debut. Did, did, didn't Crumpus lock herself out of the building today? Oh, man. I left my tag here last night. I yeah, came in after you were hours to work. And you I did? left it here and my glasses. You're so you're lying. Oh, yeah. That's why all your stuff was there and it looked like you were here. Yeah. We were all like, I swear she's here because all of her stuff is here. <laughs> but then you apparently got locked out. Hey, uh, what are we going to talk about then? Exactly. What 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 makes up this 
holiday season for all cultures. There's so many different traditions. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Kwanzaa. I'll be talking about Kwanzaa and Kaylee Krumpus, Krampus will be talking about Hanukkah, K-Dog. and then we'll talk about okay. Christmas. So we got Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and Christmas. Uh, okay, Kwanzaa. Okay, Kwanzaa. So it's actually not that old. It was created by a professor. His name is um, Milana Karenga. Uh, he kind of invented it in 1966 wow. following the Watt riots in L.A. as an effort to bring the African-American um, culture and people together. So it's kind of an African-American cultural celebration, Kwanzaa. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. It's really cool, it's, actually. It, by the way, it, and it was initiated during the Watts – because of the Watts riot. Yeah, so – That's kind of, of an interesting beginning to the holiday. But it's like they, it was trying to create more diversity in a celebration of Christmas. Well, yeah, I suppose, but it's more like focused on bringing unity oh, cool. to kind of like a diversified yeah, people. Yeah, cuz we I hear guess. about Kwanzaa and we don't necessarily what 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 are what do we do with Kwanzaa? What's the tradition? So Kwanzaa happens from the 26th of December through the 1st of January and it also has um, kind of a candelabra similar to Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. But um, they use it a little bit differently. Um, so there are seven different candles that represent seven different principles that are discussed each night. They light a candle every night oh, cool. and discuss that principle. So they have principles of unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. What are, that's cool. And then as like as families, they talk about those, try to build up those different areas, those different virtues. Yeah, and they that's also cool. like dance and they read poetry and – um, play African drums, and each family kind of does it in their own way. But it's also become kind of more of a global thing. So mm. even though it started here and was kind of specifically directed toward African Americans, it's spread more, and now more people get involved in it, and That's it's great. kind of turned into a general celebration of African culture. And you can kind of you can do Christmas before Kwanzaa in between, do yeah. a little New Year's thing. Exactly. That's neat. It's really cool. I did not know. I did not. I, I've heard it a million times. I didn't know that it had this this desire to create the unity and understand better their culture. And that's cool. Man, that's easy. And then Hanukkah, it's been around forever. Yeah. Teach us about that, Crump. So Hanukkah, um, it's the celebration of the rededication of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And there was a miracle of the oil supply. And so it's celebrated every year. It's an eight-day celebration. And this year, it's from December 6th to December 14th. Hmm. So we're right in the middle of Hanukkah. Wow, how neat. And so the whole holiday is kind of just built around um, that celebration of oil and the usage of it. And so they light the menorah with the candle and they eat a lot of foods that are fried in oil. Perfect. um, Lackey's the potato pancakes. Say it again. I don't know if I'm saying it right. This is embarrassing. I don't know either. I don't. uh, Just say it. Isn't it Lackey's? Sure. I'm sorry if it's wrong. You just offended. I know. No, it sounds so. Those are uh, potato. The potato pancakes yeah. that oh, they fry in oil, yummy. and they make a lot of like jelly donuts mm-hmm. and other fried foods. And each night they they light a new candle in the menorah, and it's it's just a celebration. Of the menorah, I guess, is a symbol of divine light, and it's a celebration of cool. that miracle. That's awesome. Yeah, traditions. Uh, and then there are any others? Christmas. And then Christmas. Christmas. So which we love. <laughs> what do you do for Christmas? Um, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Sure. Christmas yes. Day, I usually spend the entire day putting together people's toys, uh, <laughs> suturing wounds from the packaging. 
that holds my children's toys. Yeah. Uh, bemoaning the fact that we didn't get enough batteries <laughs> and that Santa and his elf didn't provide. Ugh. I get mad about that a lot of times. Last year, I spent the entire day setting up my the phones for our family because we got new phones. So that was pretty much for about a week. And then I try to light a candle. So no Kwanzaa. Every time I turn on a new phone, it's a new light. (laughs) So sad. It's pathetic. Not even involving Christ at Christmas. We have like family traditions on New Year's Mm -hmm. Eve. We have a family talent show. Oh, I want to come. Can we be invited this year? Um. Actually, Liz is coming, oh, so okay. we do have a representative. <laughs> Whatever, I won't even be yeah. here. It's fine. And now, because be of earlier, Garrett's going to be coming to do a little operetta on the last uh, to, oh, the night dancing. before Christmas he's operetta. Um, but Krumpus usually does, I think, come around Christmas time yeah. as the anti Santa. <laughs> um, keeping the kids in order. What, what do you guys do? What are, what are your plans? You're going back to, I'm going to Ohio. Ohio. Well, to not hang. Texas, but to Ohio. Yeah. And hang and with the peeps, the family. The family, yeah. We... You have sushi, I know. You're a big sushi family. <laughs> well, little Christmas sushi. I don't know that we'll have Christmas sushi. I'm sure we will at some point. <laughs> Liz, what are you doing? Staying home with family? Yeah, um, I'll be home with family. My mom uh, had a surgery recently, so we'll see how she's doing. But we usually spend it with our cousins for Christmas Eve. Fun. And then Christmas we eat like a traditional, not a normal traditional family feast kind of meal yeah, we sushi. do. Not like not like sushi. Yeah, it's not. So we respect sushi. Yeah, who does? We think of sushi. We wish for sushi, but we eat kind of like salmon and pita bread and hummus and try and kind of recreate. Really? But we think they might have eaten. That's um, really cool. To Bethlehem, so that's cool. Olives. I don't like. I don't like olives. Boy. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, we just we eat just fatty foods like some macaroni and cheese. Nice. We have ham dinner usually. Should we? I know Garrett really wanted us to talk about Boxing Day. Yeah, but Garrett doesn't have a microphone, so I'll talk about it. Okay, <laughs> and you know this has nothing to do with Muhammad Ali. Dang it! You ruined it. Okay, See, go. Okay, my father is from Canada, and so growing up, he would always be like, "Now it's Boxing Day," and he tried to teach us the real meaning of it. But I have four brothers, so it literally turned into Boxing Day. <laughs> we would get the boxing gloves out, and we had them all, and we would all box each other all day. So that's so you. Really that is fit- how my family celebrates Boxing Day. And that is that how you were? Is that how Krumpus was created? <laughs> is that where the dark side of the Krumpus? I always lost. I have pretty big brothers, and so it turned into them boxing each other. And but, and my father. Well, that, I don't, I'm pretty sure that's not the accurate. Yeah, it's not. We ruined his Canadian dreams. So all the Canadian listeners are up there, like not even close. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> my aunts just, and uncles. Oh, we gotta go. So we're just gonna leave them hanging. <laughs> we'll have to come back with a. We'll have to make up for that. You ruined Boxing Day. Okay. I'm sorry. My aunts are probably ashamed right now. <laughs> oh, well. Liz Miller, thanks for being here, Liz. Hey, thank you. Crumpus, Danes, appreciate you. Hope hey. you have a festive holiday beating people up. Thanks. You too, Matt. <laughs> her name's really Kaylee Danes, but we always pretend like we don't know her name. <laughs> and it always starts with a K when we make it up. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll go visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out if they found a head coach yet at BYU. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We are going to uh, throw it down to our good buddies there at BYU Sports Nation. Today it's Jerem, Jordan, and Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. What's up? How are you? Good. We're it's doing been, good. It's Spencer's birthday today, so we let him out. Oh, is that what you... Oh, it is? Oh, mm-hmm. we should... Oh, I should probably we sing. sing to him on the show today? No. You guys should do that. That would be really good of you to I'm, do. I'm not going to do that. Does anybody you know... Guys can, you How want. old is Spencer? Can we he say? He's turning 23. Man, he lo- yeah. he looks horrible. Doesn't look a day over twenty two. The guy looks yeah. like he's easily over thirty something. Yeah. Someone asked him uh, what he's going to do after he graduates the other day. Did they really? <laughs> yeah. Like uh, he graduated uh, uh, in two thousand seven. <laughs> that's funny. So. Hey, I got to tell you something, um, Jerem. You ready for fun? What's up? I'm so, always ready for fun. Running the board today mm-hmm. uh, again is uh, Mr. Garrett, Garrett Rushforth. Rushforth. And he told me that his dad said if Jerem had just asserted himself and come to practice, he would have been the best runner he had on the team. Oh, I know. He didn't say asserted that's himself. A, that's I added a very that. kind thing to say. But he really said, I, he said you were, he said legs for, for the little gazelle-like uh, white pasty legs that you carry. <laughs> he said they, were, they, they had more push for the buck than any other leg on the team. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so Jerem was one of those that if he just would have applied himself, yeah, things would have been different. I thought I was applying myself by running cross country at all. <laughs> that was like, that was like the application. Going to practice was too much for me. <laughs> going so... to the races was enough. But you practice. I mean, he just said if you had just gone to a few practices, just I a went couple, to two, exactly. Yeah. Were you too good for practice? Yes. Yeah. Not too good, but like I just didn't want to go. <laughs> I wanted to play, but I got cut from the JV, and uh, you know that was disappointing. So the, I wanted some competition of some kind. I I enjoyed the fact that I didn't go to practice, and I would still run faster than certain people because I thought I didn't even go to practice, and I just ran past yeah. you. Yeah, and you took fifth. Like that—that's got to be humiliating. And then I would look ahead and go, oh, "Wait, I'm not really that good anyway." Yeah, he. <laughs> you know what? One thing his dad did say, and I want you to explain it if you can. He said that you used to always run on your tippy toes. I would sprint on my toes. Yeah, he said you. Yeah. He said Not you the even, whole time, just at the end. He even said at the end when everyone would stop running and they just would be walking around. You still were walking on your That's toes. That's not true. That's not true at all. Okay, because <laughs> he has video of it. But. He said it was dainty. <laughs> That's probably accurate. Dainty, and you were surprisingly limber. <laughs> I don't remember being flexible. No. Yeah, he says you would never warm up with the rest of the guys. I don't listen. There's I'm a lot of stuff off like this diva. <laughs> That doesn't it's, want to practice. It's cross country. Yeah. It's okay. He also wanted to know why you'd only <laughs> shave one leg. I've never shaved my leg. Oh my heavens, Jerem! You don't be in done denial. Your research. We See, talked. I was a this. swimmer in high school, and I never shaved my legs. Really? You just don't, yeah. You just no. And this is I was Kearns, good. I was good was enough like, that I didn't need to. Like in the same realm as Copperfields. <laughs> like you didn't need to practice. Yeah. For but, cross country, yeah. I did not need to shave Jason, my body for Jason, swimming. We you got to have body hair to shave, Jason. Well, that is actually a really good point that we don't need to be bringing up. It didn't. You didn't have a lot of drag on your. <laughs> not back in back in the day. I did not need to worry about that. That is classic. That is so great. Hey, um, have you guys found a coach yet? Us personally, yeah, we have hired. I thought someone. you guys yeah, were. We, I thought you guys were going to hire someone. the coach. Okay, so 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 BYU hasn't, but you you haven't. I thought you guys were going to like hook him up with someone. Hey, we're hey we're trying. Trust me, Tom Homo is all over this. I, I think that is. most of BYU Sports Nation trusts Thomas F. Hommel to do the right thing. Hmm. And we'll bring you the latest on the show today. Uh, what came out of the 
Capital Gazette, a newspaper back east, about Kenya Matalolo and details about his visit to Provo next week. I heard. It's going down. Now, this is only the second uh, piece of unsourced or, I guess, direct sourced information. Everyone's got sources, unnamed sources. There are only two coaching candidates that have had definitive information about them from a named source. Hmm. Pete Carroll, Seahawks coach, right. Daryl Bevel, not, not, not. In the running, not going to be that coach. That's one. And then now the Capital Gazette talked to the agent and, uh, of Kenya Matalolo and the athletic director at Navy. And there's info. We will share that with wow. you out in 10 minutes. <laughs> this is big news because it's, I mean, it's, it's something. Because it's, it's, it's actual news. Yeah. It's actual news, not, yeah, it's not right. just to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is Everyone good. has their sources. Okay. so um, Myself included. Well, yeah. Right, the runner, uh, the marathoner, the long distancer. Um, what what would you expect? I mean, do you really buy that he's just coming for a visit, or is he? Uh, it's obviously more than just a visit. There's intention to see if he's the guy. Yeah, yeah. And but if he is, offer him a contract. Hey, what, what? And we were talking about this earlier. What does what does one talk about um, if you're coming for a visit uh, to to talk to you know Tom Holmo? What is that conversation? Okay. I mean, yeah, it's it's obviously, you know, what's your vision for BYU football? Tom Holmo, you know, can say this is what we're looking at. Does that fit what you what mm. you envision? The the other part of it is, especially with Kenny Amatololo, is this is a guy and, and, and Cougar fans cringe when they even think of the possibility. Kenny Amatololo, his entire football background has been with the triple option. Right, since high school. I mean, this is what this guy knows. This is why he is as successful as he is. But it's not going to fly at BYU. Right. And so, I mean, that, that has to be one of the major topics that Tom Holmo brings up is, hey, if you want this job and we want you to have this job, what do we do about the triple option? Because that's not what BYU is known for, and nor do I think – Anybody at BYU, mm-hmm. and this is not coming from sources. This is just my own personal opinion. I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to bring that to Provo. Right, right. No. No. Well, that's that's going to be an interesting conversation. Does he does he meet players? I mean, maybe you're running by the players a bit? Do you... he, BYU has a strong player leadership council, and so I imagine that he'll— he could. This is cool. Yeah, yeah. This is all. We're just. This is. Can all. you confirm though that you've been asked to be around just to meet him? Because I mean, I know that's a big deal they, to Ken. Oh yeah, no, they they asked to meet me. He's like, I, I one thing I want to make sure that I I do when I'm in Provo mm-hmm. is, yeah. is no, meet totally. Matt Townsend and be on the Matt Townsend show. And it's more his wife. I think he's doing it more for his wife. Okay, uh, but he's a smart man. Hey, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> totally. Can you imagine that? I'm not going unless because Holly Mendenhall is a contributor on our show. So the the person they choose, they've got to have a spouse that really is into being on radio. Regularly, so that's, yeah, I, that's don't, I don't know about uh, Mrs. Niamatolo. Uh, they were in a movie, so they're probably cool. Yeah, they're probably fine with it. Their yeah, their life's an open book. They were in the Dark Knight, right? Oh wait, no, no, no. It was Meet the Mormons. My bad. Yeah, not a little, little different. Knight. Yeah, a little bit different. Anything else going to be on your show? Or are you, are you just going to talk? You know, head coach position. John Beck, former BYU yeah. quarterback, will uh-huh. join us as well. And then my one on one with Mitch Matthews, senior receiver. We'll talk about whether he's a lead or not, among other things. Man alive! It's another great show, guys. And it's we Spencer's so. birthday. It's, it's also Spencer's Frank Sinatra's birthday. birthday tomorrow, if you guys were wondering. Oh, nice. And it's also Monique's birthday today. I have uh, an aunt named um, Monique. Why, how do you know that? 
I, I every once in a while I check out IMDb to find out which actress <laughs> yeah. or famous person has a birthday today. And for some reason, when I saw Monique, it mm-hmm. just made me laugh. Why? Then, why? Why do you do on that? Campus, they're handing out free bacon. We'll tell you where. I'm serious. Free Are they really bacon? Yes. Yeah. Oh, this is big. This yeah. is big news. Dollar Cougar Tales and free bacon. We'll tell you where. BYU bacon. Awesome. Okay, guys, have a great show, and let me know on the bacon because I gotta get some bacon. Rush forth. <laughs> Rush forth. Take care, guys. See ya. Rush forth. Garrett, they just did a shout-out for you. That's crazy. I know. I'm I'm practically famous. They must not have heard you sing earlier. I was just going to say, I debuted my singing career on the radio and uh, then a shout-out. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, they're going to be calling me up and telling me never, ever to do it again. Well, I'm pretty sure, yeah, no, they've already, they were already saying that out in the hall, just huh. the singing part. Oh, well, that's good to know. Hey, j- listen to this. You would think you could, you know, you're not supposed to text and drive. We Everyone knows that. Duh. But don't you think you'd be safe to pull out your phone in a drive-through lane at a gas station or at a like a burger joint? Check this out. A Canadian man has basically been ticketed for texting while in a fast food drive-through lane. He replied to a text while waiting in the drive-through lane. AJ Doust usually knows what to expect in a drive-through. Place an order, pay, pick it up. Earlier this week, though, something he did not see uh, coming happened. He said, I was just sitting there and I got a text. I replied to it after texting. Uh, Dow said a police officer knocked on the window and asked him to pull over and gave him a $287 ticket for distracted driving. I just asked him, like, in a drive through Really? The legislation prohibits the use of a phone on any thoroughfare, public or private, uh, that the public is ordinarily entitled to use for the passage of vehicles. Ultimately, distracted driving tickets are up to the discretion of the officer. Doust admits that he may not have uh, – he, he didn't do himself any favors by asking those questions. So, holy cow. And honestly, you're going to get ticketed for texting in a drive through I get it if your car is moving. You shouldn't be. But if you're sitting there, can you not text? You know who needs a ticket? Are the people that are in line in front of you at the McDonald's that are acting like they've never been to a McDonald's before? (laughs) Like, what should we get? I don't know. What do they have at McDonald's? You know those people (laughs) that spend hours? Come on. Anyway, be careful while you're texting and driving. You also may have heard the, uh, the story of the British astronaut that wants to run the London Marathon while orbiting Earth. British astronaut Tom Peake. Won't be in London for the city's marathon this April, but he'll, he's still going to try to run his 26.2 miles aboard the International Space Station. Isn't that cool? He's going to take the London Marathon worldwide by uh, running up there 26.2 miles from space, which, by the way, if you're going to run a marathon, wouldn't you want to do it in a weightless state? <laughs> Come on. I could run a marathon in a weightless state. I don't know. I'm not a runner, Garrett, but... So you probably ought to help me with that. But if you're weightless, it seems like it's going to be easier. I don't know. I hate running too. But your dad's a your dad's a, tri- a cross country coach. Oh yeah, he tried to get me to do cross country and track all throughout high school. I did. I pole vaulted instead of running. Oh, did you? Yeah, I was awful. Were you a bad pole vaulter? Well, I only I only cleared I think twelve, maybe twelve six, but twelve feet, twelve yeah. inches. Yeah, twelve feet. Okay, good. Well, twelve inches would. I, mean, I can clear twelve inches. <laughs> Here's uh, here's our hero of the day. As you know, we always like to uh, end the show with a hero story. 
And our hero today is a real-life Santa Claus. He buys an entire toy store uh, for New York City's foster children. Listen to this. Carol Suckman uh, noticed a toy store closed down in her neighborhood, decided that she was going to step up her philanthropic game. She regularly purchases hundreds of toys every year for the New York foster kids, but buying out an entire toy store was completely new to her. Hudson Party Store had been closed for months but was still full of toys, and Suckman said, I thought it was so sad that all those toys were just sitting inside the closed store, so she contacted the owner and bought the entire store. She says the owner was thrilled that the unused stock would be going to such a good cause. Uh, Suckman said the volunteers uh, bagged up thousands of toys, stuffed animals, and school supplies and brought them to the city's Department of Homeless Services. She then uh, She's a former owner of a successful tech company and was very modest about her big purchase. She says, I know everyone can use a gift around holidays. So, Carol... Suchman, you are the hero of the day for the Matt Townsend Show. Seriously cool. You have the ability. You saw the need. You made it happen. Folks, all of us can be heroes, and especially at this time of year. Make sure you're looking out for everyone else. Make sure you're looking out for those in need. And we'll be back again Monday to give you more ideas, more tools to help you uh, live a healthier life. Until Monday, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you again Monday.